the Sunday Morning Linux Review with Mary Tomich, Tom Lawrence, and Tony Bemis as the Beaver. And this is episode 302. Unicorn Bash Prompts. And this is Tony Bemis. Tom Lawrence. Phil Parada. Jay LaCroix. And uh, Unicorn Bash Prompts. So uh, that comes out of uh, a couple different things that we were just like hashing through here right before the show started. Yeah. So uh, later in the show, we're going to have a discussion about Unicorn Rating Prompts, which is the AI system that Elon Musk uh, said where AI can write things in really good human contextual stuff. And of course, Phil derailed all of us by putting a Bash Prompt as a unicorn. (laughs) So So fun. Yeah, yeah, we're like, how did you do that? So the show is now starting <laughs> ten minutes after because we all had to change our uh, PS file to have a unicorn in it. And then yep. we realized it breaks things, and Tony said it breaks Tmux. Is that correct? Yeah, Tmux doesn't like it. <clears throat> yeah, it doesn't Aww. break Tmux for me, so maybe I, we should compare configs. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure I'm just sticking in the wrong place. Probably. That's that's how it all goes. <laughs> Lots of things start with that. Anyways, <laughs> a unicorn themed episode today. So let's start with catching up. Tony, uh, anything exciting that this today represents? Oh, today. Uh, well, 39 years ago, there was this lady that went to a hospital, and then I popped out. Oh. <laughs> so, no, uh, yeah, so today's my birthday. Awesome. Happy birthday. Thank you. Uh, I'm not sure if I shared this on the show, but I'm a twin. And, oh, I uh, did not know that. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that I was born, uh, well, if I w- had waited 15 more minutes, to come out, then I would have had a different birth date than my sister. Ooh. So hmm. she would have been on the 24th and I would have been on the 25th just because it was like 1145 at night when we were, I was oh, born. Oh, wow. Cutting it close. Now, yeah. your twin sister, is she on the red team? Because you do network security. <laughs> oh, yeah. <That's, laughs> she's is a, she the evil twin? <laughs> she is. She's a pill pusher. Oh. No. Uh, the legal kind of pill pusher. <laughs> legal, well, yeah. Legal drug dealers. Right. That's all, it, a lot more of it's legal now, so <laughs> that category got expanded. <laughs> right. Um, no, just uh, happy to get up uh, early morning and do something I love to do. So uh, here having donuts and cookies and uh, and coffee. Yep, and we got a hard drive to crush. Yeah, crushing hard drives. Because you can't have enough physical security and destroy your data physically when it's done. That's so. right. We have, a, we have a hard drive crusher here at the Lawrence Systems office because we, we just like using it because it's a very satisfying sound to hear a hard drive crushed in two. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. I, I remember you uh, talking about it, but I don't know if I've actually seen it. Oh. Or at least I know I haven't seen it in action. Well, you can use it So because it's, right. it's hand-operated because we're not that rich. We don't, <laughs> we don't have a hydraulic one. Right. It's still fun to crush things. I think Phil's crushed a handful of things. It's very fun. Yeah. I, I love <laughs> using that crushing tool. Yeah. No, it's... There's something to be said for shooting a hard drive or smashing it with a hammer or a drill press. Yeah. But using this crushing device, oh, that's real fun. Yeah. And when we pulled out, uh, we pulled out some big raid arrays out of a school um, for their old recording system for their there. And I think there were 20 drives we had to crush. So mm. it's it's still fun. But even 20 drives later, I won't lie, we we all are still just enjoying the crunch noise it makes. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> mm-hmm. We have a uh, if you look at my YouTube channel, there's I think if you type in crushing it as a search, you can find we have a video of what it is and where you can buy one. Because uh, they're actually not that expensive. They're, a company started making them, and if I'm not mistaken, I heard a rumor that it's a lot of data centers have mounted them to carts because it's so easy to crush the hard drives and it's 
mounted to a cart. And then as they pull drives out of commission, they crush them there. That way they don't have the problem that many data centers have is that room where we keep sticking hard drives that we're going to crush later. The next thing you know, there's like 500 hard drives in there and they're like, it, it got out of hand. Yeah. <laughs> so if you do it on the fly as one of the process, one, the data doesn't leave and two, you don't have a room full of hard drive that you have to figure out what to do with. Mm. We had a client that had that problem <laughs> recently. They had space for it, and then they wanted to reclaim the space, and they realized everything that had ever been retired out of technology is still there since 1997. Hmm. Wow. They have so many old printers, it's ridiculous. We're helping them. It's, it's a project. Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Anyway. Uh, um, so I'll catch up a little bit. Yeah. Um, I did a... Fun dive, because people have been asking me about it, into Lux encryption, how to use it, how to set it up, how to configure it, because um, I realized there was a lack of YouTube videos on it. A lot of people had asked me about it. Um, so Great I did, video. <clears throat> thank you. I try to cover as uh, overview as possible. I Due to a few requests, I may do a follow-up video on uh, a couple of other ways you can use Lux so you can boot your system and then Lux decrypt the data partitions secondary. That's actually how I use it at home. Um, and I don't know where you're at with this, Jay, but I know you were looking at a way that it can boot the kernel and pull a Lux key. I did um, it. I, work, I did it in VirtualBox okay. and got it working. Oh, so, cool. Um, it was one of our listeners wrote in a really neat yeah. script, and I believe the script is written against Debian. So in your case, that worked to your advantage. Yeah. I'm using Ubuntu, so there was some additional changes and tweaks I had to make. But essentially, what it allowed me to do was write a script that would basically use BusyBox and DropBear, and it'll utilize the SSH connection. If I remember correctly, it hooks into something, which then inserts the password into the um, prompt. So the server's prompting you yeah. for the password, and you run the script, and it actually enters it. What I didn't like about it is that the password is in clear text in the script. But since it's Bash, it's super easy to omit the password, and you mm -hmm. can make the make it a variable as um, you know standard input, and you could simply run the script, type the password, not have that be captured, and then it could simply do the same thing, but not have it in in uh, stored in clear text. So, the proof of I'm sure the listener also knew that too. So uh, it's just a proof of concept, and yeah. I did get it working, and it was just amazing. It's, it's like a five second delay or something. To where I think, okay, it's clearly not working. Five seconds later, oh, hey, something hey, just cool. happened and the server's booting. So uh, that's probably something I might actually start utilizing. So That's very cool. The um, I haven't really tested that. Like I said, mine is uh, I boot it up and I attach a second drive that I use Lux Encrypt. So it actually boots the system, but all the data is stored on the Lux Encrypted uh, side of things. Um, that's a good way to do it. Yeah. Too. So to me, that's like an easy way to do it. That way I can fully reboot. As a matter of fact, when I'm doing updates, I can reboot it a couple of times or fix something uh, on it. And then when I'm done, I can then restart. What about swap? I, where, where is swap? Uh, or do you even use it? No, I never use it. Okay. Well, I don't have to in these. So. Okay. Because the only thing is that there's a residual data left in swap and that's not on the encrypted partition. Could right. Be. Right. That could be. But a, if you're not using swap, then if it's disabled, then I guess that doesn't matter. Yeah, I think when you do the new Debian installs, it, it builds an encrypted swap, I think. Yeah, you can do uh, DMcrypt yeah. and set up encrypted swap. Yeah, yeah. so mm -hmm. it uses that, So which is the same uh, backend for Lux. So it's full and disk <clears throat> encryption. If you switch to that, then that's automatically going right. to be in place. Um, other things I did was review the NetGate SG1100, um, which is a really cool little PFSense box, and it's $159. So for people looking for an affordable way to get into PFSense, 
No, I'll rip it right off like I did in the video. It only routes at about 700 megs peak. So if you have a gig internet, you are going to run out of room. So, um, but other than that, I really like the box. It's great. It's full PF Sense. Now, what's interesting is it's router on a stick. Um, it's an espresso bin board uh, running DDR4 with uh, clocked at like I forget how many gigahertz they clocked it at. Pretty fast though. They put they had to put a big heat dissipator on it to mm. deal with the extra heat generated by it. Um, but it has a two and a half gig backplane and three ports. So that's part of the reason you have gigabit at the line speed um, shared between the three ports. But that's also what causes it to slow down to about 700 and some odd megs a second max routing speed once you're applying all the packet filters. Turn off packet filter, it does full gig. But obviously, you've got PFSense for packet filtering and all kinds of other features. Hmm. Uh, but it makes a great uh, home router and it makes a great ad blocking home router. So uh, you have all the pie hole feeds via PF blocker or any other ones you want to add on there. You have OpenVPN, which will route at about 123 megs a second, which really impressed me for a box that small. So if you wanted to do a OpenVPN route with uh, any of the ma major providers, PAA, Nord, they all support OpenVPN. Absolutely easy way to do it with this box. So hmm. um, I, I think it's just like, I don't think you can really touch it for the price and features. I know I, I like the edge routers as well. A lot of people bring them up, but the edge router just does not have the feature. The edge routers are solid and secure, they just don't have all those extra features you get with a PFSense box. Are they ever going to get to feature parity, do you think, at some point? No. Okay. Even though they hired one of the PFSense developers uh, a while ago, they just don't seem to be cranking out the features on there. Um, hmm. They're so The iterations on their firewalls are have been so slow. An example in the Unify world is there's still no, unless you edit a JSON file from the command line, which is tedious and potentially can break, uh, you can't even add multiple IPs on the WAN side. Everything is like this more involved process. They just kind of want you to, oh, let's add it from the command line. And I get people say, well, you're just afraid of the command line, Tom. I'm like, no, not at all. But I hate firewalls that have a web interface that you can't do anything with, so you have to spend all your time going through a JSON file, which, you know, tediously finding the port names and naming it. I'm like, look, I, I used to do Cisco IOS. Yeah. I know how to do this. I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> Even yeah. system administrators want things to be user-friendly. Yes. Because sometimes we're the user. Yeah. Sometimes we're the user. I want to be able to sometimes do Sometimes consistency mm -hmm. is important, too. Yeah. And this is one of the props I give the PFSense. For every, they, they unlock every imaginable menu item for pretty much within reason for every module that's in there. But at the bottom, it appends other things. So if you ever want to add something to config file, you're still not going to command line. The bottom of every module in PFSense has an option to expand and add that config. An example is going to be unbound. So if you use unbound in PFSense and you want to go, hey, I want to add PF blocker on there. That's actually what PF blocker does. So if you expand the advanced section uh, on unbound, you realize PF blocker added an include to include all of its include files inside of PFSense. So it makes it super easy to configure um, like that. So it's pretty neat. And what is Unbound, uh, that, for those that don't know? Oh, uh, that is the DNS serving tool within uh, PFSense. <clears throat> that is their default uh, for handing off DNS. Hmm. Very cool. It's a funny name. Let's play on what uh, Bind. Like, yeah, yeah yes. Bind is. Yeah, I, I, oh, I, I, never <laughs> made, I never made that connection. How embarrassing. Yeah. Instead of binding it, we unbound it. Yeah. So, oh, now, now it all came full circle. Yeah. Um, you know what I did with my PFSense is hmm. uh, I turned on um, uh DNS over TLS mm. for, yes. I both turned it on as, uh, to run as the server. And then my, all my DNS requests going out goes to a TLS connection now instead of, uh, open. So it's an encrypted, you know, um, I might want to try that too. 
Yeah, um, the nice thing is since they updated PFSense, they added it as a checkbox. So my video now is uh, moot. I did a video on how to add it because once again, you went to the advanced section and because they're using Unbound and it was supported within Unbound, uh, you could just add the uh, commands to connect to something that supported uh, DNSSEC and DNS over TLS. Now it's checkboxes. Uh, when they mm -hmm. updated it, they just added it to the interface. Yeah, it's so, nice. The only thing you have to do is uh, make sure that you're connecting to something that supports that. Yes. So Cloud, if, Cloudflare and yeah. uh, Google servers, I believe, do just... And Quad9. And Quad9, Quad yep. yeah. That's the ones I'm using. Uh, so, But your local ISP may not have that available. Right. So um, you just want to make sure you connect out to something that you know it's working. Um, also, I'll give my I did a video on this as well. There was a vulnerability in Nginx. Um hmm. But this is where having a modular firewall makes a lot of sense. And this is the design architecture of PFSense. Um, it's using, it's based on BSD. Now they lock down the packages so you can't just install anything. Um, but they do have their own feed essentially for it. And they updated a push so you could do a package update and update your Nginx. And this is, like I said, you didn't have to download a new firmware. You didn't have to have this monolithic wait for them to spin a signed firmware. You could just package update Nginx and curl and all the other things related to that vulnerability. And it did, so you didn't even have to. Hmm. Uh, that's one of the things I was kind of thinking about from a design standpoint, uh, designing your firewall like that. Because most of the other commercial firewall companies, um, to my knowledge, and maybe Tony's uh, you've seen more of these, like Cisco and them. They all do firmware. They don't do modules because you can't. The operating system is completely obscured from you. Am I correct? Pretty Any of the ones you've worked with? Yeah, right? most of them. Uh, Cisco. The latest versions of Cisco actually are uh, customized Linux. Okay, uh, but yeah, they're they're so customized you can't. And I thought about this is from a design standpoint. Just makes me happy and it's kind of like i hope where more companies go you kind of have to because look we don't got time to respin a firmware it's a minor flaw in curl and nginx mm -hmm. just modify just update those packages right now and you're safe yeah so there's some uh of the corporate ones that it if it's like a config issue that you want to just turn something off yeah you can go in and edit the file and, and make that change uh, the ones that we have at work we're having issue where if you try to log in from firefox or chrome it just once you go to log in, like the uh, after you get past the login prompt, it just goes to a white blank screen, and it's because there's like some form, whatever weird thing going on, and that they programmed in, and uh, and then there was this little script that say, oh, just run these two commands, and it it you know yeah. flips the bit on the one config, and then it, it starts working. So uh, that's which is pretty cool that yeah. they have that. So it's, I, I don't know, I, I'm partial to open source firewalls, but I know in the corporate world, because a lot of people ask me, how do I convince my boss not to use XYZ firewall? And one of the problems is I said, do you guys use application filtering? And they're always like, oh, of course. I'm like, well, then no, I'm sorry. This is where PFSense kind of falls off. And actually all the open source ones do. Uh, application level filtering is just, that's, that's still in the realm because it's super difficult. It requires you loading certificates on computers. Um, so that is where I kind of like the end of PFSense and open source firewalls. I'm like, I can't pitch you on how to sell it. <laughs> as, uh, as Tony knows, you pretty much, that's that's the standard in a corporate environment, mm -hmm. just installing a cert and everything else. Uh, the last thing I we changed is we moved over and started doing, uh, we added an EDR system. And I would not really understood this category very well until I started using Huntress Labs software. It is report only. And I'm going to be doing some deep dives into it, and I'm going to be interviewing the CEO of the company, who is also like a three-time Black Hat uh, champion for CTF. Explain what EDR is. So this is what I was going to get to. EDR is uh, 
and now I forgot the acronym because you said that, but <laughs> uh, basically what they do is they monitor for security threats. So they're actively mounted. You get the endpoint detection and response. That's it. Mm. Detection. Quote, unquote, and... the future of cybersecurity and incident response. Yes, because it's 2019. So everything's the future. And next year <laughs> it, it'll be irrelevant because, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but instead of using your standard heuristics and uh, signature based detection, they have a knock team looking for anomalies specifically in windows startup they're only focused on windows and what this does it there's only so many places you can start a service in windows so they monitor those constantly they generate signatures of all the knowns and the anytime they have an unknown matter of fact because we have clients that had software that they had never seen before. They had to start researching those and are very open about how they do it. So they started creating um, and asking us questions about what's the startup tool in this, what the startup is. They can go back and forth with them and we work with their NOC team to identify, oh, we've never seen this software before. But whenever they do that, because everything becomes an investigation and their EDR software also looks at every connection it makes across the network to help determine if it's good or bad. And it's very human oriented. So they have an AI system that helps them find the anomalies, but it's a very much a big knock team. So the software is not cheap, but it's also why it's so good because they said, look, you'll never write a system as good as we are at it. And so it's really cool. They found things we didn't know was out there. We found things that Bitdefender missed, that Viper missed, that Malwarebytes missed. But we also realized that their system, we thought at first was missing things that Metabytes found and Bitdefender found, but we realized they said, we're not antivirus and we don't find those things. We're not scanning the whole hard drive. We're watching for startups. But this is how I met them through that, uh, through the research they post. They found by using their pattern recognition, they found problems because they do correlation data. Um, when Kaseya had a problem, they found all these unrelated companies, unrelated servers, all running the same crypto miner. Mm. So their correlation data, what else is in startup? What got these on here? Correlation was Kaseya is on all these computers that also have the same crypto miner. So they dug mm. further into how the install logs got there because once they open up a response, they start communicating with you. So you assist them in their research because they don't have they, they're they're basically beaconing back data, but they're they have no active. It doesn't stop threats. It doesn't do that. So but I'm going to be doing a deep dive into how we worked with them on some of the research because it's kind of fun. It's deep security uh, and they've been great, great to work with. Also, I've never seen any company do it like this, and this is hats off to them. When they send us a response for an incident, they write all the scripts. They have some tool clearly that's doing this for them uh, or assisting in it. Um, it. You can copy pasta what they send you and paste it in PowerShell and remove everything piece by piece, every little remnant, every little registry key. They give you the step-by-step -step for anything they found, how to get rid of it, even if it's just a remnant of something. That's really wow. cool. Yeah. yeah, it's and they're very open source oriented. They post a lot of stuff on GitHub and things like that. Even though they focus on Windows, that's their only target. They have no plans to go outside of there because uh, that's their core knowledge. And generally, we realize that's where most of the problems are anyways. <laughs> so in terms of that. But they are interested in the Linux side. They say if there's enough demand, they do it. Uh, but they said they would it'd be a new discipline for them to learn uh, because Linux is a very works very, very differently. Mm -hmm. So... But yeah, that's what I've been doing for the last uh, couple of weeks. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Lots of fun. I love cybersecurity. It's also super scary when you get like 52 incident reports on clients. Good, we are onboarding a client. We use them as the new one. And we're like, this is messy. Mm. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> it, it always amazes me that computers even just work. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then as soon as you start digging any, into anything security related, you're just like, oh, this is... 
this is a house of cards that's all going to fall over. And yes. Yeah, and in uh, with uh, the new business manager we have that's been helping me organize my business better, um, he did not come from a technology background. He's a tech-savvy guy, but he's just like, he goes, I don't want to turn my computer on anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, there's a lot of scary stuff. He's reading through the, the incident reports and is like, this is so interesting and so scary. <laughs> there's a great picture that I shared with my wife uh, the other week. It was uh, uh, people who have their entire house wired up with Amazon Alexas or Echo mm. Dots and that kind of stuff. And mm. me as an IT administrator, I keep a loaded gun next to my computer for when my printer starts making noises. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. People, it's funny because people always ask, I do these videos on separating things for IoT. They're like, then they always say, well, do a to- home tour, Tom. I'm like, you would be absolutely bored. There's a lack of technology. Matter of fact, Phil, Phil could, uh, Phil's been to my house. Like, I, I even have my old Hondas. Like, I like the really old stuff. I'm like, it doesn't even have electronics. <laughs> We're surrounded like, by all day. So I, we get our fill then and then I we go how, home and we just yep. want. I know how scary it can all be. So mm-hmm. I just kind of like I'm happy to have old school things that are actually safe even from things like EMP pulses because there's no electronics on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so what I've been doing, um, lots and lots of contracting work, uh, lack of sleep and drinking far too much coffee. Mm. But that's basically the life of an IT person. Yeah. Um, so in, in my free time, uh, I've been writing some more Ansible, uh, trying to get um, my head back into that game because I've been so absent for it, from it for the past couple of years. And I wrote uh, some automation to install and configure Screen Connect behind an Apache reverse proxy. And I've got that published on my GitHub. We'll link it in the show notes. And uh, Tom and I were doing some digging on Shodan, and we found at least 6,400 installations of this software possibly unsecured. Yeah. So we know there's a lot of it out there. So we're going to do some posts on this and help get people uh, secure. And when you say unsecured, it's just not running HTTPS, right? Right. You haven't like actually tried to hack into the servers or anything. No. And here's the thing that a lot of, and this is scary because I work in the IT industry, um, a lot of people buy software and they look at the complexities of adding a certificate because it uses mono and its own, it has its own built-in web server. The downside is um, when you log in with your credentials, you're passing them over clear text. And a lot mm-hmm. of people just aren't thinking about that. I'm like, you're logging in to a system that has remote access to everybody else's systems at, at a admin system level, and you're passing your credentials over clear text. So whenever we fix one of these, we're, it's not just that. Like, anyone could sniff that data. And that's that's scary. Right. Yep. Yeah. And since it's um, since the nature of the tool is remote support, if you sniff the admin's passwords... You just po- you could have just popped every single business that that company supports. Yes, mm-hmm. and then uh, configuring a, a web server in front of any piece of software, super easy. Um, yeah. Well, I should take that with a grain of salt. I've been doing that for so long, but with automation and a clear step by step instruction, it's pretty easy. And now we'll have the code available um, for any other company or person who runs Screen Connect to do exactly what we've done. And then we use a, a Let's Encrypt cert Yep. Um, when we make it public because nice. it's free. And um, those those renew uh, on a cron. So thanks, CertBot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's definitely an enhancement for people's security. So I'm going to do a video about it because I know so many people in the IT industry that follow me. So we're going to talk about it and they can just contract us to do it. So Excellent. <laughs> 
How about you, Jay? I managed to possibly kill my free NAS. Mm. So it's one of the two rabbit holes I went down. Um, This one in particular, I had a PowerEdge T30 uh, for my free NAS, which has 8 gigs of RAM, which I was pretty much at capacity and going over, and constantly getting errors about out of memory. So I decided to upgrade the RAM, but I found out that the to get the RAM I needed for that server be somewhere between three hundred and fifty to four hundred dollars mm. to upgrade that server. Is and, that ECC RAM? Yeah. Is that why it's so expensive? Yeah, yeah, it is. And and what I look I looked into it more, I found it's actually cheaper for me to replace the entire server with the amount of RAM already installed that I want <laughs> yep. than it would be to actually upgrade that server. So I decided to buy a um, a server. I bought a Supermicro from Unix Surplus with 32 gigs of RAM, which is fine, fine for me. I probably only needed 16, but 32 is better. No, you need 32. <laughs> okay. well, I'll, take, I'll take it. Yeah, okay, I need 32. Yeah, hard space so on that one. <laughs> I moved the drives from, and I have backups. I'll prefix this with I definitely have backups, so there's no question about that. So I just take the drives out, put them in the new server, and I find out the hard way that uh, this basically FreeNAS doesn't like Adaptech. It just they don't talk. So, uh, long story made short, FreeNAS would not see the drives. It would just boot up and complain, can't find your drives. And um, I thought that was interesting. And per Tom's suggestion, I don't know why I didn't think of this myself because I'm the one that preaches this to everyone else. I tried booting from a Ubuntu flash drive, and it saw the drives just fine. So clearly there's an issue with uh, FreeNAS and that Adaptech card. So um, sup- or, uh, Unix Surplus, they sent me an LSI card. So I, I popped that in there, and now the server can see the drives. Great. But FreeNAS can't activate the Z pool anymore. And I'm under the impression that, this is just a theory, that perhaps something got written to the drives from the original RAID controller that overwrote something some metadata that's needed to um, reassemble. I don't know if that's exactly mm. the case yet because I've been so busy with work. I haven't been able to really like deep dive into the problem. I've had 15 minutes here, 15 minutes there. Um, it's been down for at least a week, week and a half or so. Um, and at this point, you know, it would be a lot less time to just probably restore the backup and just, just wipe the drive, start over again. But the reason why I don't do that is because this is a valuable learning opportunity. If I can get it fixed then I'll learn something. But mm-hmm. if I give up and I wipe the drives, I've learned nothing. So I'm just going to want to make sure that there's really no way to recover this before I just start over. Not only that, but it's going to take days to restore all the data. Um, Do you know okay. on that uh, on the drive controller you have now, the LSI, mm-hmm. is there options to run it as like RAID or ACHI a- or uh, just IDE? I didn't see that yet. So the current status is that... Um, I did accidentally boot or attempt to boot to the hard drives by just um, not setting the boot order. And I got the message saying these are this is a free NAS hard drive and not meant to be booted from, mm-hmm. which is promising. But I understand all that means is that maybe something still present in the master boot record doesn't necessarily mean that or wherever it stores that doesn't mean that the data is still there. But it's promising to know that the disk wasn't completely zeroed out by the RAID controller. So that's something. But now the current status is it shows it's locked in the GUI. And I don't know if that means that the drives, since they weren't assembled or detected, that it's locked because it can't access the drives or it's locked because it's encrypted. I don't remember encrypting it. I know there's no passphrase. So I'm still going down that 
um, path to try to figure that out before I give up and just wipe it out. So that's well, kind of where that is now. Did you do a fresh install of uh, FreeNAS? No. It, so it, it, you just moved your moved all your USB. drives and USBs moved, over? Yep, I moved the USB over and the drives. And so, so if it was encrypted by FreeNAS, then it would have still had the key and decrypted it for Unless you. the RAID controller yeah. overwrote metadata that tells it some or, other... Or, or if you had encryption turned on uh, on the RAID card, I don't. No, I don't think that's possible. Well, the the PowerEdge T30 was just a direct connect for the drives. There's no RAID controller in the mix at all. It was just SATA, direct to the motherboard. So, mm. um, when I got the new server, that one had the Adaptech RAID card that I hooked into because that's um, you know how it works. And did you, did that, you, sorry, go ahead. When you set up on that uh, Adaptech one, did mm-hmm. you try setting up as a RAID, or you just just plugged him in and tried to boot. I just plugged him in and tried to boot. I didn't actually set anything. Now, the, what worries me, and this is what I think the underlying cause is, is I contacted support about it first, and they said, well, you know, you have to create a, a JBot for this so it could pass it through to the motherboard. And they gave me the process. I'm like, okay, is this going to write anything to the drives? Said, oh, no, this doesn't write anything to the drives. doesn't change them in any way. It just makes them accessible by the, the BIOS. So I'm like, okay. And I do it, and it doesn't ever at any point say it's writing anything to the drives. It's just basically mm-hmm. making them available. So if what the Unix surplus person is to be said is to be believed, then drives should not be changed in any way, shape, or form. But problem is they're not the, the Z pool doesn't get assembled. If you do a Z pool status, it doesn't show it. It's not listed. It's just no output other than showing the boot volume. So that's worrying. But then the GUI, and this is weird, the web GUI sees, says, hey, you got this volume one Z pool, but it's locked. So the web GUI shows it, but the command line utilities don't. So Hmm. it's just something's Mm -hmm. not in sync here. So at some point, I might just have to give up and restore from a backup. So um, which will take days. You got a fast fast connection home though, right? Yeah, it's pretty fast. But um, yeah, it's still probably going to take some time. And then the other rabbit hole I went down, because I think I mentioned in the last... Uh, episode I switched to AMD for graphics as an experiment and um, for the, for those who haven't heard the long story made short is I was surprised that no proprietary drivers were needed so with this new ATI card I plugged it in the computer and no drivers needed I just started playing games the open source driver is plenty fine all my games work which is amazing but that went down the sec caused me to go down the second rapid hole which is basically like okay so the power the first of all the UPS obviously wasn't enough watts or, or volt amps and I had to buy a new UPS because it was screaming at me when I tried to play games. So this video card upgrade caused me to buy a new UPS. <laughs> and then I noticed that the uh, fans are really loud in the video card because it the case I have is a really small one. The the power supply is too close to the card, there's no airflow. So I buy so okay, I buy a smaller power supply. And then I discover that the power supply being smaller, the cables can't reach the motherboard. So then I go back and I buy a new case. (laughs) So now this one video card upgrade has caused me to upgrade many other different components, but it, the computer looks amazing. It's a really awesome case. That's how it works. Yeah. I'm actually happy with it. It's pretty cool. Did you install RGB though? Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. On on the uh, uh, water cooler is RGB. There you go. And the fans as well. So, and, and they're all synced to the same shade of green. That's my favorite color. So it's a black case Great. with green fans and, um, a, you know, green so glowing uh, water Those are color. the, re, you know, mm. how many lumens of RGB is way more important than how fast it is. I, I know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. And it works well. So, so I basically have all that set up. And 
On the YouTube front, I have at this point recorded 21 Python videos and going. Awesome. And they haven't all been uploaded yet because <clears throat> I'm in the process of editing and I'm really slow. I'm, I'm promising to try to get three out each week on Wednesday. Um, I think the ninth one just got uploaded last Wednesday, so I think I should probably be up to 11 or 12 by this coming Wednesday. And I don't know how long this series is going to go for. I'm probably going to try to keep it around as long as I can because it's a lot of fun. And if it's a lot of fun, I kind of want to just you know keep doing it. Yeah. I'm not sure how advanced it's going to go, but it's causing me to look into Python deeper. I've known it for a while, but then when you're explaining it to someone else and you're explaining how something works, you're like, wait, how does that thing work? I never questioned this one aspect before. Now i got to read up more about it, and it's causing me to have a deeper knowledge. I, that's one of my favorite things about when I dive into these YouTube videos because what I'm trying to do is I try to be covering more than – like I'll have my knowledge from my use case for it. But while I'm digging into it, I'm like, you know, I wonder what these other parameters are. And then I'm like, oh, and, you know, this becomes kind of a fun learning experience as you dive into it. Yeah. In Tony, who's uh, taught classes, you know, mm -hmm. you, you have to be really on point or the students will tear you apart anyways. Oh, so. yeah. They will. They'll, they'll ask you that, that question that uh, you don't know the answer to. Yeah. So you undoubtedly dove deeper into knowledge before you've done teaching. So. Oh, yeah. You have to. <laughs> yeah. Tony smiling goes, yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, so far... The, the the comments have been um, pr pretty good. Uh, it's the first programming tutorial series I've ever done. And after this, I'm thinking about doing one on Debian. I'm not exactly sure because I wanted to do it on CentOS, but the problem is CentOS 8 is around the corner. It, it wouldn't make sense to do that now just for a new version to come out. So um, 8 is in beta, I think, if I remember correctly. So I'm just kind of waiting for that to come out. And while I'm waiting, I might consider doing Debian. I thought that'd be fun. And... This is just an experiment to see what the viewers of my channel are into. So the channel is learnlinux.tv. And, um, yeah, I'm just basically making some tutorials, see what the audience is interested in, to gauge uh, what types of videos that I do from here on yeah. out. And as both of our channels, then we keep uh, adding more content and things like that. It's interesting. And uh, we're looking for some channel sponsors because if it makes enough sense and makes enough uh, dollars, more specifically yeah. in sense, um, I'm going to build out a second studio space that, I can just leave everything set up one side for our podcast here and then the other side for the YouTube stuff where I have dedicated areas for recording. Mm -hmm. uh, that way, um, so I have at least one more person that may be interested in producing some content. And I'm like, hey, why not? You know, right. Uh, and we're in a strip mall here at Lawrence System, so we can expand into the other building. So exciting stuff. Yeah. And yeah. It's been a great experience, uh, you know, recording uh, these videos in the new style uh, so far with a different, you know, doing actual Video editing, which you taught me at PenguinCon last year, and I, I kind of took that and just went crazy with it. And uh, so, thank you for that. And um, yeah, it's a lot of fun doing it. I feel like you know now that I know how to do the video editing and I'm getting more into that, I feel more comfortable producing content because before it was kind of hard. You know, I had to do it all in one take because I didn't even know how to edit yeah. it. So, and I'd have to start <laughs> over a lot, and I get frustrated. And yeah, now that's I'm just calm and doing the recordings, editing myself whenever I, I say something wrong or whatever and um so far so good so all right cool all right so i guess we're going to move on to listener feedback we want to hear from you call 734-258-7009 or email show at smlr.us with your feedback and questions Listener feedback. And we really got to edit that because the number's invalid, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> Anyways, 
Uh, what do we have here for listener feedback? We have quite a few. Uh, we have Dave uh, emailed us about a DD observation. A DD observation. Yeah, Phil, I know you were emailing back and forth yeah. with him. Yeah. Um, what What happens on Dave's system and my system? He's running Linux Mint 18, and I was testing on Fedora 29. If you have a process running under the utility watch in a, in a terminal session, and you open up a brand new terminal window, and you try to resize that new window, just dr clicking and dragging the corner of the screen with your mouse, watch will continuously fire. So let's say you have a timeout of 10 seconds and you want to get 10 seconds worth of watch data. Mm -hmm. And if you're logging this to a file, you expect 10 lines. Every time you click and drag the other screen, you will generate extra data for yourself. Mm. So uh, what we did was we filed a bug report with the PROC PS NG team, and they manage um, the watch utility. And that was pretty cool. Mm. It was Dave's first time uh, contributing uh, to an open source project, and I got to follow up with um, my observation on a different system. Nice. That's pretty cool. You know, the watch uh, utility is actually pretty interesting. Uh, I didn't learn about it until, like, six months ago oh it's and it's fantastic i love that thing it's yeah it's so, something you learn a command you're like how did they ever live without this? <laughs> yeah. and that happens to me all the time uh, so for our listeners that aren't familiar with it is uh it's the command is just watch right and i've only used it with dash d so it's watch dash d and then quote and then whatever command you want to run and quote and by default it's every two seconds uh, and so what it'll do is it'll just run that command every two seconds and it'll refresh the screen. And then uh, by default, it'll highlight what's different. So if things pop in or out of the screen, uh, then it'll tell you. Um, and I've used it for like arc tables when I'm on a firewall and I'm watching to see if a computer comes online. Oh, then yeah. I'll see the arc table and it'll highlight that, you know, whatever changed. Um, yeah, that's a good so idea. That's, yeah, that's a, a nice thing to so use. It's the D option. The highlights, and I just checked that. You're right. So that highlights what's different. And on mine, I've never used that, so I've never seen the you know highlighting the difference before. But now mm. I will always use D. Thank you very much. Yeah, that. it's convenient. And but the thing is, if it adds a line to it, then everything from that line down all is updated. You know, so it's new information. So the whole thing highlights. But if just one little variable or one little you know number in the middle of the line changes then it'll uh, you know, show you there. So say another reason to do is if you're running PS uh, AOX and you have that running and you want to watch to see you know, what is coming up or what's running, and uh, if for some reason things swap in, uh, you know, in, in lines or adds, a, uh, you know, adds to a tree of something that's running, then uh, it'll highlight it for you and it's easy to see when the new process spins up. We are all typing in our computers was, now. Yeah. yeah. What's interesting is uh, FreeBSD uh, doesn't have, or the, it also has a watch utility, and the command is watch, is not the same watch. No. No. And I tried running it on my FreeNAS, and uh, what it's doing is it's trying to watch a serial console, I think. Yeah. There's there's a few BSD commands that drive me nuts, like when you're trying to look at things in D message and things like that. It just, it, ah. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, I run into that sometimes too. The command doesn't so work the same way. There's actually a, a neat little script I found that all it is is a loop and it runs that command so many times. And uh, they had, the one I found, they had a specific command that they're running and they just say watch the, like, watch HDD or something. And it would just always run that HDD command they had in there. Well, I tweaked it to do dollar sign one. So whatever you, the first thing you put into the uh, command line or the first option would be the command it runs. And Pretty clever. Yeah, mm. so it worked pretty good for my free NAS. Well, there's also, I'm trying to remember what it's called. Um, the it, name is Lumi, but there's the PFSense uses it. It's the binary log format, so you have to use it. You can't just like catenate no. it or anything like that. So there's another tool you have to parse it through because mm -hmm. of the way it stores all the logs in like a binary style format, mm -hmm. like a compressed. It's really, and it's a BSD thing. Um, so the, some of the tools don't work. They don't translate right away to BSD. So Is it like PS log? <laughs> something like that. It, anyway. I can't remember the name of it. Yeah. Anyways, moving on. What else do we have to listen to feedback? We have an email from the head of programming for PenguinCon. We're gonna be there. Yeah, we're uh, we're registered to to be at PenguinCon again this year. I think this will be year six, six or seven that uh, we'll be there. So that's uh, it's getting exciting. That's exciting. Uh, uh, we also had an email about uh, stock Android phones, and because we had talked about them on the show. Uh, in, you can find like the Nexus XP, the original Pixel. Some of those are ones you can find cheap on eBay. Uh, and we'd also mentioned to show that Pine has some Linux phones coming out. The, hmm. So those are, I think we missed it in the last episode we mentioned that. So Is the 6P still supported with updates or is it too old? Uh, I think this is the last year for it. Okay. But, I thought it was last fall. Or was it last fall? I think you own, there's, I forget, there's like, they get a certain amount of security patches, but no other updates, like mm. just security. Okay. This is, it's kind of like how the Windows, like, yeah, it's out of support, but you get security updates until this date type thing. Yeah. Was there a successor to the 6P or was that the last? That's the last one. And then they went to the Pixel line. Oh, so okay. now you have Pixel 1, 2, and 3. Got it. That's our current line of phones. Uh, what else do we have in here? Uh, we had a couple of nice notes from Brad about congratulations on the 300 shows and uh, from Brian with Mary coming on the show. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel bad I wasn't able to be here last week for that, but uh, uh, it all uh, worked okay. out, I guess. Yep. All right. I think that's all I see. That's all I got. Is it time to talk about distros? Yeah, distro fever. Distro Fever, where we cover the latest hot distro releases and news. All right, so I see Ubuntu uh, has an update for their 1804, so the LTS. LTS has a new update, yeah, yes. So yeah. two. I actually recorded a video about this that I'm editing that's going to be on, on the channel, but I'll probably want to talk about why this is so significant, because when people see a point release... They're usually correct if they think, well, that's not a big deal because it's just all the updates until now. And they're right because that's exactly what a point release is in Ubuntu. But there's actually two point releases uh, that actually came out and uh, that are important. 1804.2 has a new hardware enablement stack. And that, to me, is what separates Ubuntu from a lot of other non-rolling distributions because with the hardware en enablement stack, it, it is specific to LTS, long-term support. What this does is it updates the driver stack. So, for example, if you were to go to 
a store and buy a random laptop right now, and you were to try to run Ubuntu 18.04.0 or 0.1 on that laptop, chances are some of the hardware would not be detected properly. Your network card might not be seen. Your, your video card mm -hmm. isn't going to get the best performance. But with 18.04.2, they actually upgraded the kernel to 4.18 and included new drivers on it. So if you install from 18.04.2 media, then you'll have basically the equivalent of the Ubuntu 18.10 stack. Because what they do is they take the current non-LTS release after it's been out for a while, and then they apply its kernel and its drivers and backport them to 18.04. And it starts with the point two release of uh, any LTS. So, for example, they started that with 16.04.2 for the 16.04 cycle, and now the point two of 18.04, they're starting that as well. One important thing to understand, though, is unlike most point releases, you are not going to be automatically upgraded to the new hardware or enablement stack. So if you have 18.04 installed already and you upgrade, you are on 18.04.2, yes, but you are not going to have the new hardware enablement stack. You'll still be on the same kernel that it came with because they don't want to break existing installs. But if you can opt in by manually installing the, the new hardware enablement stack, if you choose to do so, which you should only do if you're having problems or you want to benefit from performance increases, but if you install from me, the 1804.2 media, you'll start with a, the 4.18 kernel. So that's why I always look forward to the 0.2 release of LTS because it's um, actually a pretty exciting release. You might get some performance benefits. And then I don't know if I see it on here. I don't so far. It's not announced. But there's also a new release of 1604 that came out, which is significant because there wasn't supposed to ever be a new version of 16.04. There was 16.04.5. My understanding is that's supposed to be the last one for 16.04. Uh, I still support it. You get updates, but they weren't going to make any new, like, actual ISO media. The 16.04.6 came out specifically because of the apt vulnerability, and they wanted to have install media available that has that uh, fix for apt built in which is CVE 2019-3462. So I didn't see that mentioned on DistroWatch or any of the other distro announcement sites. So I thought mm. I'd throw that in there in case people want to... People should up, Everyone should update their media if they're using 1604 to make sure they're yeah. on the point six. So they already have that fix built in. Right. I think, didn't they say that uh, the 1604 version, they were only doing like a two-and-a-half-year support, but moving to the 18... It's like a 10-year support so or something, the way it, right? Similar. So the way it works is you get five years of support on Ubuntu itself. Three years of support, and this is LTS specifically, so five years on Ubuntu, but three years on a spin. So, for example, if you're running Ubuntu itself and it's LTS, you get five years of security support. But if you're running Kubuntu, Zubuntu, Ubuntu Mate, it's actually just three years of support. So mm. the five-year support is limited just to Ubuntu itself. I don't know how they how they do that because, I mean, they all use the same base. So even if you're using Ubuntu Mate, for example, you're still pulling the security updates. But that's how they, they work that. Now, um, 18.04, I believe, was changed to 10 years for that one. Ah, that so was um, some crazy number like that. I don't have the article pulled up. But it is the case that they extended that, and I think they're going to be doing some kind of, um, I forgot what they call it when they have a supported distribution, but there's like an extended support or extended security support. Mm. 
then it moves into where at that point they're I think they're actually doing some custom kernel patches because the kernel itself won't even be updated anymore mm-hmm. or supported anymore. So there's going to be some a lot of manual work for them to keep that going. But if they're willing to do that work and keep it secure for longer, I guess that's something. Yeah, you know I don't know why it's not listed in here, but uh, FreeNAS eleven eleven uh, one U two or eleven two U two is out, and uh, they don't have a list in your distro watch, but that came out and there's a flaw. Um, and I covered it in a video. It's basically your jails won't start. So by I don't know how they missed this. Um, this is a weird. So it, the, the jails won't start in the new version, or the new version yeah. is out to fix that. No, the new yeah. version it won't start the jails. I ran into that. Okay. Oh. So what they added was a great feature. So in the things we added as a feature is the ability to choose different bridges uh, for I/O cage, so it can bridge to different network interfaces. The downside of this is. It doesn't seem to leave one in there by default, so you're oh. you just have to choose a default one. It's Even a really if you have easy fix. One network interface or one bridge, it still doesn't choose that one. Yeah, it, I yeah. don't know why so, it does that. So then hmm. the, your bridge, your uh, jail has no networking, mm-hmm. and it just fails to to start. Yeah, so it's a, it, it's a minor fix if you if you know where to look. Um, so I made the video of yes, you should update. This is how you fix your jails because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's a, it's such a minor. Um, thing to do. I don't really know how that got past code, but it, it things happen. Yeah. I understand because uh, they quashed a huge list of minor bugs, mm-hmm. minor nuisances with the UI, minor nuisances with the overall system. So it's a good update to load. They also brought back by popular demand SMB version one uh, oh, the, wow. as a checkbox and people running legacy environments. Oh. Yeah. oh, no. Speaking of legacy environments, I've got uh, Two distros that reminded me of Puppy Linux from the before times, the, the before long, times. long ago. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, it's, the it's, Pentium Two days. It's grown up to be a fat dog, and, isn't it? And the, <laughs> yeah. and the PS3 days. I ran that on PS3 back when you could do that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. It's interesting though. Fat Dog is the name of the distro. Yep. And, or Fat Dog sixty four. Oh, you were serious. Uh, I thought you were just uh, mm-hmm. joking. No. <laughs> yeah. So it makes it fun. But Lin- wow. what's interesting? It's a lightweight distro. It's called Fat Dog. Oh, the the icon for it is great. I yeah. love it. Yes, and the I other like one it. is Easy OS. That looks interesting. Which also has an interesting name to what the actual d- explanation is. It's supposed to be an Easy OS, but it's an experimental di- Linux distro with custom containers. <laughs> I'm kind of scratching my chin on that one. How easy is this really? Yeah, right. containers. That sounds easy, right? Mm. <laughs> All right. I think we reached the end of that list. Yeah, there's a lot of de- development stuff in place, but yeah, uh, we'll, we'll wait till those, those come, out. come out. And I'll submit to DistroWatch if they need to cover the latest free NAS release, you know. Yeah. And Ubuntu, 16.04.6. Yeah. They're slacking. Go on, mm-hmm. DistroWatch. All right, so moving on to the news. Tech news and views. All right, so Tom, you want to let, uh, start us off? Sure. So despite rumor mills and years of them kind of empty promising, we still don't have Google Drive for Linux. But don't worry, someone wrote something called O-Drive, and I linked to it there. It's kind of interesting. It's a, a Google Drive client for those who want to run on Linux. I know it's not open source as far as Google Drive not being open source, uh, but a lot of people kind of want to move things uh, back and forth. Google Drive is rather popular. We use it even for my business. Um, so someone finally put something together there. I know you can mount it within Ubuntu with the where uh, is it their Fuse system? Is that how it mounts? I think so. I know I've got it set 
it up and pop, but I don't. It doesn't work as well. So I know I mean, it asked you at the beginning if you want to sign into any of your cloud providers. I never do that, but I, I wonder if you signed into Google if it would set something up. Yeah, they have some things. I played with it just to see if it worked because I did integrate my calendar into Pop OS with my Google Calendar, and I signed in with it. It works. So things pop up when I don't have a browser Does it open. Use a specific calendar program like Geary, Thunderbird, or would it to populate your calendar in Pop! OS? I only have it for my calendar notifications. Okay. So probably if I clicked on it. I just Got want to it. know when something like, oh, I'm supposed to be doing a thing. That's mostly what it does for me. Got it. I'm supposed to be doing something else now <laughs> or or be somewhere else now. Um, and I've been starting to play with it a little bit more, but Riot, the decentralized uh, messaging, well, that's the front end for, uh, what is that? It's the new interface for it, though, the Riot system. Uh, it's now reached 1.0, which is pretty slick. Uh, if you haven't used it, basically it's like IRC. So it's definitely got some UI improvements, but that's come at the expense of check your Chrome usage when you open up and sign into Riot. Uh, so it's, if you're familiar with IRC or NetWorld, and IRC is wonderful, but it's feeling dated and the young generation doesn't seem to be there as much. I mean, us gray-haired people and, and, and Phil are there. I love, I love IRC. <laughs> oh, IRC is great. I absolutely adore it. When, yeah. when you're looking for that one specific piece of information that doesn't exist on any of the forums, there's somebody on IRC who has it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's nice, uh, but this is kind of, you know, all web enabled. It makes people happy and riots a whole front end for the decentralized messaging platform. So it's pretty neat, uh, but like I said, it, it's look, it actually looks a whole lot like Slack. So, And there's something funny in this article. Um, it's definitely shots fired at Slack. Yes. They say, before you ask, yes, there is a dark theme. Yes. Because mm. Slack has had an open bug for something like four or five years now, and there's, there's a Twitter thread that's 10 miles long about yeah. people requesting it, and yes. Slack's saying, it's coming, it's not coming, don't expect it. No, no. And then I think Riot and uh, some related tools like that that are decentralized and open source may start to replace it because there's limitations. I get annoyed because I, well, even I produce, I I, I got a tab open right now for the MISEC, uh, Michigan Security Security InfoSec group, and they all use, everyone uses Slack for all these things. But it's kind of like there's not a better system to build upon, so they were kind of done there. So I think with Riot and some of those decentralized systems, maybe we'll have a something out there like IRC. It's not that I I wish more people use IRC. I just know they're not going to. So web web front ends forum is kind of the way to go. It's where it's easy. I gotta admit, even for myself it's easy. <laughs> um, curated list of awesome free and open source electrical engineering. This someone took some time to put this together. It actually links directly to Reddit and apparently he's gonna uh, there's some comments in this Reddit thread that is gonna get uh, cross-posted over to the electrical, electrical engineering subreddits. But there's a huge list. If you want to get into circuit design, uh, like, in-depth, they have so many tools, including ones, and I. this is where it gets kind of fun. You can, because prototyping has become easier and easier, you can design a circuit board, design it to do the thing you want it to do, um, put the chips on there, simulate it all, and then upload it to places that will produce it for you and get physical ones made. And these are some oh, of those wow. tools that kind of get you into that whole uh, building IoT. And at the state we have of IoT, of not being good, this is great because this makes it easier for more people to get into being able to develop IoT. Uh, so hopefully the the 
bad IoT will get pushed out by people producing really good IoT. At least it's my hope. I'm an optimist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but there's an Arduino simulator. So if you don't own Arduino, uh, you can get one. There's a simulator for uh, just all kinds of little chips and things like that. It's just amazing. Just it, I've played with some of these too because they're great for just learning electrical engineering uh, and putting in things like I want to put a resistor here and a couple transformers here and this, and you can kind mm -hmm. of get those results and start poking at it without getting zapped. Because when I was a kid, I just got zapped a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I learned the hard way. <laughs> Did you open up uh, yep. TVs? I took apart a TV. Oh, I survived. I, yeah, they, they, TVs zap you good. There's only 30,000 volts in them. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I learned. Um, Freedom EV, a safe way to enhance your car for Linux geeks. And there's a proof of concept and some other stuff on here. But this is so you can upgrade. Uh, and they have a Fostem link and everything. So you can upgrade your Tesla. Um, you know, make your Tesla more open. For those of us who can afford a Tesla. Yeah. Uh, oh. 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 Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And, and who don't mind affording one and potentially bricking it by loading different firmware on your Tesla. <laughs> so I find it interesting, uh, but I really like this as a concept. Now, there is a huge following because Teslas are a little bit hard to repair aftermarket. So the way this kind of relates is um, there's a few YouTube channels where you can get started on this that are people who hack Teslas. And they hack them apart, like physically and software-wise. Um, turns out that... Tesla doesn't seem to have a problem with this. Like Elon's like, hey, I'm cool with it. Um, you can get Teslas that have been junked and wrecked and Frankenstein Teslas together. And that's what some of these YouTube channels are dedicated to. Uh, and then they run open software on there. And the open software allows you tons of flexibility and unlocks all the power. So there's people who have built custom race cars out of Teslas. My favorite is the people oh. who built all the VW bugs out of old Teslas. It's mm. They are beautiful. Uh, they build like the VW bug vans made out of Teslas. They have entire kits. You just take <laughs> some. And what they did was, um, remember Texas flooded last year or the year before? Uh, There's a lot of people in Texas that have enough money for Teslas. And when they were underwater, um, they wrecked all the Teslas. But the whole Tesla system's electrical is sealed. So the car may have a wrecked interior that smells like wet interior in texas <laughs> but the all the electronics are completely salvageable to rebuild into another vehicle so there's a lot of youtube channels dedicated to that and this is um all related which i think is absolutely fascinating and I, they are affordable that is cool yeah I, I like the idea of taking old things and changing like the the unseen parts yeah and then you know to update them so i i've always wanted to get like an old classic car and then put in like a car pewter into it and yeah, and things like that. Well, there's a there's a this whole movement of converting these old cars into electric, and uh, one of the reasons why is is Tesla's zero to sixty time is three seconds, mm -hmm. and of course that's one of your goals. Where you're trying to put bigger and bigger engines in it. So now it's this weird muscle car quasi theme where <laughs> these younger people who are like, well, we can just do it this way, and they are, and it's pretty amazing because they're. It's like, wow, they're taking these cars and building something that is faster than the original car was, um, but not by enhanced loud engine. It's like, yeah, we put an electric thing on there. <laughs> Just, <laughs> and, and now I can beat your 700 horsepower Mustang. <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting thing. And it's uh, the fact that they're open sourcing more of it on there. So it, it, I like it. I like that there's a whole builder community for that. Yeah. Where did the Equifax data go? Anyone heard from them? So, well... Yeah, we think yeah. that this may have been, this may be further proof of something, there was a lot of speculation about about Equifax, that the attack was we, that some, maybe a nation state or whoever that attacked it 
wanted someone or a someone's particular information. But it would really be obvious if I was trying to find Tony's information. But I steal everybody's information, you suddenly don't know who the target was. And so there's a lot of speculation around that because the data has not popped up anywhere online on the dark web for sale. Um, so that's kind of our yeah. thoughts on there and that it's probably that. So good news, you're not likely that the you can hack bad news you can anyone can be targeted at any time because now all this data is in someone's hands we just really aren't sure who and right. equifax yeah, still so, is a dumpster fire <laughs> yeah yeah and that definitely leads to the idea that it was a nation state instead of uh individual hackers yeah you create enough noise it's almost like a distraction we, we don't know what the you know we've seen this in in those crime movies and stuff we don't really know what the target was because they made such a distraction they hit everything but they're only there for the one piece of paper right so i thought that was interesting and the same thing about the uh, star hotels there's a lot of speculation around those so the all those hotels being hacked they think because they have threat persistence for a number of years that someone was gathering data, but they think it's to do correlation data because a lot of it was going to China, and that correlation data could have been used to figure out who's a spy and who's not based on who stays where under what assumed names. Because once I can correlate that across every hotel across the world, I have a really interesting piece of information to help figure out who someone is. Sounds like spy games. Uh, yeah. It is. It's, it's cyber spy games. It's just, you know, getting bigger. Now, if you haven't moved to Linux yet because you're, you know, waiting for the perfect opportunity, how much will staying patched on Windows 7 cost you? Here's the price list because uh, I, not everyone likes Windows 10. We're less than thrilled with it. And Microsoft released their pricing for extended security updates. And uh, it's going to be annual pricing on there. So Windows 7 Pro is going to be like year one, $50 a device, year two, $100 a device, year three, $200 a device. And the long tail of legacy... Uh, knows that a lot of people will pay this said ransom. Mm -hmm. I We still have a laser cutter running over here in one of our clients that runs Windows 95. So good news is it's not online. Yeah. So it's not much of a security risk. The bad news is pretty much all these Windows 7 ones are online. Of course, there's plenty of Windows XP ones still online, people paying extended support. So uh, it's time to look at Linux, man. Just uh, move it all over there. Don't pay the ransom uh, to keep the system secure. <laughs> it won't be so bad. It's not yeah. so bad. I've been here for a little while. I agree. We end up having to uh, firewall off all uh, devices that are no longer in, under support like that. Yeah. So anything that's, you know, XP and older, I'll have to go in their own, like, dedicated VLAN and firewalled. Because and, it's not only, you know, is if it or is can somebody hack into it, it's if something gets on that device, then it's going to start trying to propagate out through the entire network. And you have to mitigate that. Well, I was reading an article that I thought was really interesting related to your industry was, I didn't know this, and confirm me if I'm wrong or this article is wrong, but when they approve, let's say, an MRI machine that is using Windows XP, the FDA approves Windows XP along with it, like that particular install with the entire machine. So when it's approved for medical use, they mean as it is, not as it would be if I updated to Windows 7 on it. Therefore, that's one of the challenges they haven't upgraded because it breaks their rules of they would have to go through a certification process mm -hmm. again so they just keep it on Windows XP and do what you said, firewall it off. Yeah. So that makes sense? It does. Okay. And it usually, whatever the software is, so specialized. Very specialized. That, uh, if you tried to upgrade to something else, then it would just break and you'd end up having to pay, you know, a lot of support. A million dollars to have yeah. the vendor come out and fix it or replace just the software part, you know. And it's, 
Is yeah. we um, we have to service X-ray machines that we. The good news is they're not on the networks, and we do the same thing when they have to be as firewall and off. But a lot of the X-ray machines at these smaller doctors' offices that are not part of the larger companies, um, mm-hmm. they can't afford to replace them. So they're running Windows XP uh, machines that scan people's. There are a lot of dental offices and things like that, so they're not. They don't have that um, billion dollar support mechanism that a larger company may be right. able to have. Like, oh, just buy a new one, and they're like. It's $112,000 for this machine that spins around your face and makes your teeth mm-hmm. <laughs> on a screen. So, yeah. yeah, upgrades are slow in some of those worlds. What's nice about putting it behind a firewall is uh, firewall rules are fairly easy to make them uh, intelligent. So you can make, uh, you can allow, you know, uh, window shares to connect to it, mm-hmm. but it can't connect out. Uh, so, and you can say only specific computers can connect to it. So if you have some kind of like move job, uh, you can have a file server that holds all your company data on it. And then it just has a little cron job or something yep. that connects out. And then only those two computers can talk to each other. And then it's the firewall just won't allow any other virus or worm or anything even to yeah. come in contact with that unsupported you, device. I think you would probably describe that as a pinholing the firewall. So you only create pinholes only to the absolute yeah. necessary and not more. <laughs> so... I actually yeah. hate that term, oh. but I agree. Okay. I've always heard it called that. I don't know. If yeah. It's, no, I, there's it's, some inaccuracies and I know, but yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, uh, it's something that most people associate with it. So it's fine. I just don't like using yeah. it myself. <laughs> Pinhole your firewall. Yeah. <laughs> Next show title. Anyways, um, just because you're running Linux, don't assume you're safe from Microsoft when you remote in. So RDP clients exposed to reverse RDP text uh, through some protocol issues. So it's interesting because Microsoft, uh, the RDP protocol itself is closed source, but people reverse engineer it, and there are several clients you can use on Linux to connect to Windows boxes. Ramino was a pretty good one. Um, back in the yep. Zen Server 5 to 6.2 days, and then uh, when you upgraded Zen Server to 6.5, Citrix broke RDP connections mm. from Linux. Remain yeah. is still pretty good. That's what uh, Mint has by default for the. They they just call it like remote to a computer, but it's Remain running in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they found some ways that between the way the uh, clipboard architecture sharing works and the ways you can move files back and forth, that there's some code overruns. Once again, a memory vulnerability. I believe it was all kind of memory overwrite where they can break out of it. Uh, and some CVEs have been issued for this. It's kind of an edge case because you'd have to connect to a machine that was crafted to hack you back. Mm. So there's, it's not like this is a flaw that they can inject it in the, into the stream. The stream didn't get uh, compromised. But if you were to connect to a compromised machine, there's a way it could reverse the attack towards you. So, which is actually just in general and interesting that people are poking at this because one of the things we're seeing in the market is desktop as a service where a lot of computers are becoming more and more like a dumb terminal uh, where they remote into things. Well, obviously this attack kind of is applicable to them because if they were able to reverse back into the machine that's connecting to the other machine, uh, this is how a lot of the insurance agencies work. They all RDP into things. They're slowly moving to web-enabled stuff, but the short-term band-aid on a lot of it is... uh, desktop as a service that's how they lock it down on their side to keep the insurance provider stuff secret but now you're using rdp to come in now these flaws granted are in the linux ones but it's still someone's poking at it and it's only a matter of time before they find the next flaw glad they're poking at it though i'm always happy when i find that people poking at stuff it makes me feel better it would i agree Uh, what's interesting about that article it's what they focused on our desktop and uh Mm -hmm. free desktop right yeah and which i've never used either of those um 
But it's because I've used Ramina and me or I've used just like VNC. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're they're both interesting. They're both interesting, and uh, it's one of those things that I believe when someone says, well, well, I like this project because it's never been hacked. I'm like, has it been vetted? Mm-hmm. When I know right. someone's poking at it, I feel better about it than just the fact that it hasn't been hacked. Right. So that doesn't necessarily mean anyone ever took a look at it, especially unpopular new projects, which is tricky to trust at the beginning. I want someone to code review this. I want someone who knows how to code review review this. Yeah. Yep. You know, uh, your last point about that, I think, is is uh, really accurate because uh, even our, you know, in healthcare, there's desktop as a service and the um, what. I heard about that article through uh, Security Now, mm-hmm. and uh, he left that off. He just said, oh, why would you be connecting to a server that you don't control? And, well, there's lots of reasons now. To- yeah. There's a there's a really common uh, – pretty much all the insurance – if there's an independent insurance agency – so you have your state farms, you have your you know your chains, but the independent ones, they all RDP in because we know we support we do IT support for them and that's just how their systems all work which is interesting because our IT support is very limited for them because everything is remote desktop like their computers they don't care they just throw them away like yeah. they buy cheap computers because all they do is open up they get them online and they RDP in and they do all their work there um, mm-hmm. so it's obviously it's I get it from an ease standpoint that way they never have to deal with any software installations or anything like that at a bunch of small insurance agencies and they RDP into each one so if you want to quote from like different underwriters uh, when you go to those independents, they RDP into each one of those to get the quotes a lot of times. So mm-hmm. it's really weird seeing how that works on the back end. Um, confusing and unusual. Yeah, It's slowly turning all the web-enabled stuff. You know, I just thought maybe uh, we can define what uh, RDP and what uh, oh. software or uh, desktop as a service is. You know, so yeah. RDP is remote desktop. <laughs> so it's uh, when you're connecting to, into another Windows computer or more of a, like a what they call a terminal server. You know, it's it's the full Windows desktop, but it's running on a computer off somewhere else. You know, and, and uh, I use it all the time at work to be able to connect into other computers or into other servers. Uh, but what's nice about the terminal server, uh, the Windows terminal server, is that you can have hundreds of people connect into the same server. Yes, uh, and that's what we're talking about is desktop as a service is they have this terminal server sitting there and people remote into it and then run whatever program it is. Because it's easier to configure the one server to run this software than to go to every single client out there or PC and try to set up that software, you know, 100,000 times. Right. Which is also why everything's moving to be web-enabled because of the complexities of dealing with RDP versus build it as a web-enabled app. HTML5 is damn near an operating system. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of functionality. And that's why we're not seeing any more development for... No one's writing Windows software anymore. No new startup has a new program that they wrote in Windows. There's only support for legacy Windows apps uh, because of that. Because it's just... it's it's going the way of the dodo. So it's yeah. going extinct. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's in some, it is definitely interesting. Um, Google's security blog had an update. So Tony's probably never heard of this because Steve Gibson covered it as well. The Adiantum encryption for the next billion users. Uh, I, I like that Google seems to also be stealing our data on one side, but doesn't want our data to get stolen because if we didn't have, if they didn't have our data, they wouldn't be able to monetize it. So, but this is actually in the big picture of things good. Uh, this is apparently a pretty big upgrade and they're going to be able to encrypt even slower Android devices with uh, Adiantum. So they're extending the different um, encryption algorithms and being able to have your phone locked down is important because the problem with phones is we have way more data than ever before on them. So it's not like I'm worried like, oh no, if you stole my old Nokia, you would have my 
few friends' phone numbers. Now you would have like my two-factor authentication. You would have if you if my phone was not encrypted. Uh, so having your phone encrypted as they become frequent two-factor authentication devices, uh, gateways into many levels of access to our lives and personal mm -hmm. information. There are uh, portable pocket cameras and everything else. Having them encrypted feels better. So uh, Google's working hard at that. So not only on their flagships phones, but pretty much all their phones are going to uh, be able to have more encryption on them. What's the uh, performance impact of this new? Uh, that's that's actually the really cool part about it. Yes. So compared to the way before, it is substantially faster. Uh, and that was the challenge of low-end devices. It was unreasonable to encrypt them because it was so slow. Uh, this better encryption algorithms are sub every way substantially faster. So uh, the way it hashes things is uh, way, way more efficient. I'm seeing here that it says around five times faster mm -hmm. than uh, what's currently used. Yes. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And anytime encryption gets faster, that's better. You know, that's what, like I said, the initial with like Lux, uh, Lux has become, because it's uh, encrypt, it uses DMcrypt and it's in line with the kernel. Um, there's not, and it uses AES and I instruction sets. If you have an AES and processor, which they've been around for about nine years now, um, there's like no performance hit. It's so minor, it's not noticeable. So it's better to encrypt um, because phones are designed on the ARM platform. They have to do things a little bit differently. So they uh, definitely a lot of progress being made in here, and it makes me happy seeing all this. Right. What's interesting is it's still like AES. Yeah. It's just a, the algorithm. So AES can be implemented with many different algorithms. Yes. And uh, they, uh, this algorithm that they've um, identified to use with it is uh, just makes that much of a difference. With uh, it's faster and it's still secure. That's, that's the important part. It's still secure. Mm -hmm. And these, this is some of the good things. Uh, love or hate Google. These are still some of the good things you're pushing out there because this is all open. This is all available to anyone who wants to download it, uh, these updated encryption, and the fact that it all works on ARM. So It's going to be in the Linux mainline kernel version 5. Yes. Um, I'm going to move this one article down to last, the OpenAI stuff for the implications, the show title name. Uh we'll go over here to dark reading and talk about what you can make huh? as a uh, cyber extortions can earn you about $360,000 a year. So I always have people say those, Oh, why don't these hackers get a real job? Cause real jobs don't pay $360,000 a year. <laughs> so, well, maybe they do. You can have jobs that pay that. I'm just saying they don't, but I'm saying that extorting people for money turns out to be really lucrative. I'm not <laughs> saying this as you should do this because <laughs> my job all day is defending against it, but this is why it's so hard to defend against. Cause I currently will admit to not making $360,000 a year defending against <laughs> cyber extortion. <laughs> um, it's a tough, tough problem. It's uh, really lucrative and there's a lot of low hanging fruit out there. Uh, and that's what these guys are, you know, picking in companies all the time. We deal with a lot of them. You know, an example is, and I brought up the last show, that those 80 businesses that were hacked because an MSP, uh, their IT provider was hacked, which in turn hacked them, they all got cryptoed. They all had to pay the ransom. So that's 80 more companies that contributed to the uh, thing. That was the solution because they were offered, you know, um, mitigation through, the, you know, the, the, the uh the person doing all the crypto says, hey, no problem. Here's my fee, and I'll unencrypt all your data. And so they had to pay the ransom, and that's a lot of money. I mean, that's a, that's a good day for that person. It's 80 companies that all had to shell out money. So wow. Maybe they'll get a Tesla. Maybe maybe he'll buy a Tesla. <laughs> uh, you can buy a couple Teslas at that kind of money. So that was a good payday. Now, Microtech, and someone said that's not the way to pronounce it, but I, if you go and look up 
they're from Latvia. That is the correct way to pronounce it. I, I, far as I know. <laughs> um, but there's a great, there's, well, it says making it rain with, with uh, Mikrotik is uh, one article that's linked here. The other one is called Mikrotik Firewall and Nat Bypass. And basically it makes the firewall do exactly the opposite of what you think a firewall would do. So people, and this is where I have a problem with Mikrotik, they have default configurations and people always call me out. Well, there's a different configuration you could use and configure this so it doesn't do this. I'm aware, but the tyranny is default. Most people get something, they plug it into the internet right away. And by doing so, uh, if you have one that has not been patched, then you can have a port open. It's the configuration port. And that configuration port will allow people to send packets there. If they have an idea of what's on the other side, on your LAN side, they can get from WAN to LAN. They have to know. But don't worry, it's a matter of time before they can guess. So if they didn't know the IP addresses of things behind your LAN, it's a matter of time before they can poke at it until it responds uh, because you're leaving it online. So they have infinite amounts of time to sit there and have bots script and do this. Uh, but this is an entire proof of concept. Now, the good news is Mikrotik did um, take only a couple days from reporting of the CVE to closing it. The downside is no one ever updates firmware, um, and this is the problem with a lot of inexpensive devices. They're often put in by, I hate to say it, but just cheap people who also won't pay for managed updates and things like that. That's why there's so many thousands of these getting pwned every day. Um, they're just swinging out in the wind, and this is among several CVEs. And the problem I kind of find is with the way MeagerTick designed their system, they have this thing called Winbox. And Winbox is a control program they have. So it emulates on your Windows computer or in Wine a interface to the Mikrotik. So you can kind of configure it in like a lab and then push it to the Winbox port. And it's using some weird protocols that they designed for this. Well, that's why these flaws keep coming up because they aren't using like, you know, oh, I don't know, SSH <laughs> or standard protocols that are well vetted. Uh, that's part of my problem with Mikrotik is anytime someone tries to invent their own way to do things, uh, you better be really, really good at it before you do that. Because if not, you're going to end up with a bunch of CVEs and what a mess that is. Right. Yeah. Anytime I think about adding something, I'm not a programmer, so I, I wouldn't be like, oh, I'm going to customize my own port to connect in on. It always sounds a bad idea to me when people do that, though, because... Yeah. If I mean, I think I'll connect over SSH because I know it's a secure connection. If mm -hmm. there's a flaw with SSH, somebody else fixes it. Yeah. I don't have to do anything to my program or my setup. Well, and that's so. when you look at things like uh, Ansible scripts and stuff like that. SSH. Why? Because we know that's a well-trusted admin uh, port. It's going to get updated. There's a lot of people constantly on top of it. So now I can write scripts without having to think about the security layer as much. Mm -hmm. I know that's right. being taken care of as a module that's external. Some of the most important concepts of programming. Uh, number one is don't repeat yourself. Don't write the same code or block of code twice. Write a function. But another thing is also don't invent something that's already invented. If something, some API or framework already exists and it's already been written, use it. Don't invent your own, you know, that does the same thing because your own code won't be as vetted. The, you know, reuse code, or I mean, import code or functions or libraries other people have written and been tested. Don't repeat yourself, and generally, you're probably not going to have a, as big of a problem. Yeah. Now, in, in the weird world of doing things in a strange way, so hacking for profit but in the, in the more unusual way, is a decryption key for law firm emails uh, hacked has been released. Now, I say strange way because what these people did was they gave a sample of the data that they had uh, acquired and put on the web, and then they encrypted the rest. And they basically dangled it out there and did a fundraiser. <laughs> 
<laughs> that if we get enough money, we'll release the rest of this data. And they were able to raise eleven thousand dollars. So it was a Kickstarter type yeah, thing. Yeah. That's <laughs> I it's the weirdest mm. thing. So basically they set up a Bitcoin and once enough people donated to it, and eleven thousand apparently was their magic number, uh they released the rest of the, they released the decryption key for all the data. So what's stopping someone from actually using like a Kickstarter? Actually, I was wondering and kind of just crypto. We have this data. Yeah. We're not going to bother going after the company, letting them know. How about we offer to this to the public? If you get stretch goals, if you get to this point, <laughs> <laughs> you, get, you get this company's data, and if you get the stretch goal all the way to the max, we'll release all of it. Well, and that's why I thought this is a really interesting way to do it because the company they let they listed the companies involved. And I think one of the things they had offered was, if I remember the earlier days, because it's been going on for a little while, and they just now released the encryption key, but not to the companies this time. But I think what they do is they put it out there on the web, and they say, if it's kind of like a bidding war. Does the public want the data, or does the company <laughs> want the data? Oh, I got this offer for you wow. guys. Who wants to pay the most? I got the general public kickstarting me up to eleven thousand. Who's got twelve? Who, who I, no, if I wasn't such an honest person, I'd be so rich right now. Oh, I know, I know. It just drives me crazy. But I'm just like, but it, I thought it was such an interesting angle on it. So it's, uh, it, I mean, this article to me is less about the data. It's all about the methodology right. of how they raised money. For Everything two- you'll <laughs> ever invent or will be invented in technology will always, at some point, be used for evil. I'm just shaking my head at this. It's yeah, it's such a strange angle. But I, I only these attacks never get better; they only get worse. So someone's got to go darker. So what's the next iteration of this? I mean, I never thought we would take Kickstarter style fundraising and use it <laughs> against companies. But hey, why not? <laughs> well, as long as they let the company bid on it too. As long as the company, yeah, as long as it's open to everyone to bid on, right? Yeah. There's somehow we can justify that. <laughs> not really, though. <laughs> So uh, in the scariness and uh, things that Elon Musk tweeted, he's basically, Elon Musk has open AI initiative. And the open AI initiative studies the impact of open uh, of uh, AI on the human race and what implications, what are the challenges we're going to face. So they're trying to be a thought forward uh, kind of organization that puts to go, you know, how is this going to go? What will, what will be different if we have this technology and how will that impact uh, the humans. And he tweeted that this was quite scary, what they had discovered on here. And what short is, uh, the short of this is they have writing prompts that they were given. So they give them a lot of resources of where this AI system can look for data. Reddit was one of the big sources of that, hence unicorns. Um, so the prompt for writing was, this was the prompt they gave the AI system. In a shocking finding, scientists discovered a herd of unicorns living in a remote, previously unexplored valley. The Andreas Mountains, even more surprising to the researchers, was the fact that the unicorns spoke perfect English. Then it writes several paragraphs that is very human language, like not like anything I read here. It basically spins an entire in-depth story on this topic. So it expands upon a writing prompt. So this is this is actually already going on, and um, I was surprised because I did listen to Steve Gibson's coverage on this. This is going on already. Um, I learned this from a couple other people who are telling me this is how a lot of these news articles are already written. There's already several systems out there that write these garbage news articles because they can't write content fast enough to get clickbait. Mm-hmm. So they actually have algorithmic article generators out there, and they're already doing this. And the scary thing is that could be paired with machine learning to generate articles that people want to read that the companies yes. don't even know they need to write. 
Right. You start with a writing prompt, it writes the rest of the article. This is uh, why there's like so little pay now in copyright writing, because what they're doing is they use this to produce articles on topics like, uh, I've seen a lot of this lately. There's all these, uh, don't try to Google 5G too deeply. You'll mostly find a bunch of conspiracy theorists who are selling you magic boxes and magic rocks. Lots of magic rocks you can set on your table for twenty four ninety five <laughs> that will absorb the upcoming 5G problems um, out there. It's the craziest right. thing. Wow, I love <laughs> it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's in what it does is it links to other websites, and that's what it all is. Is uh, probably I can, I don't know for sure, but this is obviously where this is going, where this system starts not just generating the main article. It builds all the support articles for it because this thing came up with mythical people and quotes from these people in this article that this AI system wrote. But if you picture what if it ran around doing all the Wikipedia entries, created other websites that all validated these people, maybe even created a uh, college website where all these people were academically validated. Mm. And before you say, Tom, that sounds far reaching. I'm not going to jump into it deeply. But if you weren't aware right here in Michigan, there was the uh, Farmington University uh, did you hear about that? No. Yeah. A little so, bit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was a Homeland Security. Uh, they set up a fake university and credentialed it. Hmm. Um, online only. Really nice website. Nicer than actually other universities. And uh, it was for getting people fake visas. And uh, they set it all up as a scam to attract people. They're trying to decide if it's entrapment or not, but it happened right here in Farmington. And they had a bunch of people wow. that they were paying to do this. But the same hmm. thing. It, when you start looking at it, creating an entire fake school to get people fake visas... People just did it. They just created a website to do it as a honeypot to trying to find people looking for that type of thing. How much easier it is when you have an AI system that writes it. Wow. And it can spin it like, you know, in Ansible script, Phil would write. And then here, write a fake article to sell fake rocks. Go. <laughs> wow. Oh, the world's a scary place. And this is almost, you know, it goes on the heels of the deep fakes and some of the other things where it's hard to validate things and Photoshopped photos and making sure they're real. Um, this is now long form written text with several verifiables, so to speak. And people will believe anything. I, I don't have the, the article. I remember seeing a picture. And I don't think it was really widespread, but somebody photoshopped a Windows error message on a um, landscape of like scenery in the sky. <laughs> and then a group of people, like, oh, that's proof that you know we're living in a simulation. Yes. Here's an error message in the sky right there. <laughs> oh, that was so funny. The sign was illuminated by the moonlight. Yes. Yes. And just some light fog rolling in in front of the error screen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the world the world's getting crazier. Hopefully we start using this for good. And maybe the other side of this is how you combat this is uh, the people at this table. We will continue to have writing prompts about how you don't need fake rocks to stop. 5G. Actually, I think what we need to do is have <laughs> Phil develop a anti-fake uh, article news generator utility that will actually using machine language generate counterpoint argue, arguments <laughs> to invalidate the articles that are being written by said bots. At and some then it could be a war of uh, script or article writing bots. At some point, we'll let the machines duke it out and we'll just go farm. The, the, win <laughs> the winner will become Skynet. I yes. can't tell you which one's going to win. That's not really the up to us anymore. ultimate battle of good versus evil. Who'd ever thought it'd be via, fought via machine language and, <laughs> or learning, machine learning and scripting? The, the statistics, I don't know, but I know exists somewhere. Is there, are, there are bots on Tinder trying to hook up with each other, and I want to know how that's going right now. <laughs> that is so awesome. There's, there's dating apps trying to date each other. And how does that work? <laughs> and perhaps the most scary part about this is if the multiverse theory is true 
and there are an infinite number of universes, then there does exist a universe where machine learning and scripting has, in fact, taken over the world. Yes. Or it has, and we don't know it yet. So <laughs> we'll just keep producing episodes in the meantime. But that's what I got for the news. That's the end of my article list. <laughs> so to follow on the coattails of that, um, has anybody else heard of thispersondoesnotexist.com? This no. is something that came out within the last few weeks. So uh, what thispersondoesnotexist.com is, is it's an, art, it's an AI-powered website um, that runs something called a generative adversarial network. Uh, a GAN, and that is originally coded by NVIDIA, and it renders a hyper-realistic portrait of completely fake people. Oh, wow. So oh, every time you refresh the page, you get a brand new fake person that does not exist, but it looks like a real person. It's um, men, women, children, <clears throat> all races and colors. Wow. Um, so this, was, this website was developed by a guy named Philip Wang. He's a 33-year-old software engineer. Um, he did it to call attention to AI's ever-increasing power to present as real images as possible that are completely artificial. But as Wang tells, uh, tells it, the stunt has ramifications that spread far beyond. Like, hey, look at this real fake-looking person. So in our society where pictures and images are the standard surrogates for proof, uh, this GAN, or gen Generative Adversarial Network, uh, automates the work that once required painstaking labor on the part of imaging experts. Um, so now anyone can furnish proof that any imaginable, per imaginable person did some imaginable thing. <clears throat> Very scary. Yeah. So there is also a couple other offshoots of this that I didn't realize until I started searching. So there is this cat does not exist.com. <laughs> But oh, the scarier one that actually someone put some time into was this Airbnb, Airbnb does not exist.com. And it uses and it probed through Airbnb to create listings that aren't real. And wow, this is inter I'm, I'm refreshing the page. And every time you refresh the page, every couple of minutes, there's a new one. Uh, that's, that's actually not a bad idea to like furnish your house as an Airbnb. You could get a, a conglomeration of like the the best aspects of different Airbnbs. Yeah. <laughs> so huh. this is um, there's some that are not safe for work. I won't say, but there's other <laughs> things that don't exist. Um, but they're making them exist. This is this is a rabbit hole. <laughs> so. On this cat does not exist .com, Some of the cats clearly don't exist. There's a few generations I've hit the refresh button on, and and it's, you could definitely tell there's an error. It's, it's infinitely adorable. It is. Well, uh, no, a couple of them are a little bit creepy. Um, and I do know, they do know no, no cats were harmed in the making of this. <laughs> <laughs> so this brings a whole new level to the Schrodinger's cat experiment. <laughs> oh, yes. That's... It really does. You don't know if the cat exists not or the not until you hit the refresh button. <laughs> I don't know. You're right. I, am I making the cat exist or did the cat exist before I hit the refresh button? Exactly. This. That's the that's the AI version of Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> this is what I want to know. I would say the cat one is not nearly as good as the uh, no. personal one. I think one was more well funded. Some of the <laughs> when I heard Nvidia did it, they got a couple dollars to throw at it. Hmm. They have a few dollars. Linus always says something nice to say about Nvidia. He thinks they're number one. <laughs> so <laughs> look at that one. 
Okay, that's definitely creepy. not a cat. No, that, sorry, it's folks. Like a we're currently looking at cat pictures, um, and now it needs to have that that particular one, Tony. Um, I think that's a human cat merge. This is, <laughs> yeah, this is bad. This one Ooh. seems to have the front and the back of the cat miss. Just it's oh, wrong. that's. I see the front of the cat. And I see the back of the cat. But they're not completely attached. <laughs> so, <laughs> not in a gory way, in a giant fur weird way. <laughs> Technology has gone too far. Yes. Schrodinger's AI cat. Why is that not our show title? That should have been. We didn't think of it. All right. Okay, what else we got? We've got to stop the cats. Firewalling off my brain from these very, very strange cat pictures and the other questionable stuff that I saw on the screens. Let's talk about the first firewall that I ever learned, and that was Shorewall. Um Shorewall, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really super easy to use um, interface to IP tables. Uh, you didn't have to know all of the arcane knowledge about IP tables. You just wrote a couple lines of text and a few different files, and there's your network security. Um, but unfortunately, uh, it has reached its end of life. The creator, uh, Tom Eastup, states... I'm now in my mid-70s and have spent almost 50 years in tech-related industries. More than three years ago, I retired from my position at Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, and while I have continued to develop and support Shorewall, I feel it's now time to say goodbye. And he's going to go on to travel the world and do all the things that old people do. Um, so the last release of Shorewall is going to be 5.2.3, and I'd just like to say, uh, thanks, Tom. That's yeah. what I cut my teeth on. Well, hopefully somebody else can pick it up and keep it going. He says that um, he'll still be around checking his emails, and if anybody runs into weird bugs, he'll help fix it. But hopefully the community can step up. Yeah. I think, yeah, I remember using it a long time ago. And wasn't this some of the basis for uh, IP Cop and a couple other ones? Weren't they, like, originally based on some of that? Some of the I, Linux firewall yeah, dishes. I was just goes, trying to look that up. It's but. been forever because there's so many forks. Right. There was quite a few that were very similar. And I, there was one that was the base. And I can't remember the Shorewall or there Mandrake was another. Mandrake Firewall was the first one I used in, in 1999 or 2000. Mandrake had a firewall distro. I never knew that. Yeah. Wow. It's long deprecated. Kind of miss Mandrake. So there was uh, IP Firewall Admin. And then that became IP Chains. And... Yeah, this history is this history is long. Not for this podcast. Yeah, you can like I said, and I'm looking at like the Mandrake firewall. I think it was like ver they still called it like version think, nine in 2002. Yeah, it, it was around forever before it died. Um, I think it's Smoothwall is what was the base of most of those. Yeah, there was Smoothwall, IP Cop, um, and Monowall. But Monowall, if I'm not mistaken, was the basis because it was BSD based. That's what the basis was for PF Sense. Mm -hmm. I think so. So there's, yeah, long Some, history of it. Yeah. And there was a, what was it called? I think it had a dog name. Oh, yeah. Um, like Fox Linux or something. Uh, or uh, Puppy Linux. No, it, it wasn't Puppy. <laughs> no, but it would run on a floppy, and it was a firewall. This monowall did that. It worked on yeah. the floppy, which is kind uh, of a That was novel. my first one that I ran. Yeah. It was cool. It was interesting. Yeah, because you could eject the floppy when it's done, and as long as the session didn't reboot, it would work. Mm -hmm. I always thought that was cool, because that was like your secure way to do it or something. But 
So if it'd reboot and then you'd be dead in the water if you didn't have the poppy in there. Right. <laughs> All right. How are we? Have we reached the end of the show? Do we have anything else? I have a or, few things. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't think we got to. Oh, God, Jay's well, I'm sorry. Almost. <laughs> Not trying to jump ahead. No worries. <laughs> Did you have anything else you wanted to say, Phil? Or? All right. So, Jay, uh, what have you found? All right. So, I have a couple articles here, a handful, actually. Uh, the first two are both firmware related that I found were interesting. So, the first one is from Pharonix, and it says a Linux vendor firmware service has served up more than 5 million files. And this is important to me in, for, in the sense that I've often struggled with firmware updates in Linux because, you know, it's like, what do you do? Do you just have a Windows partition on your machine if it's not something that's shipped with Linux to install firmware updates? Some vendors will give you like a bootable ISO that you can flash to a CD or whatever, boot from and update the firmware. Firmware updates in Linux for a very long time haven't been that friendly, but um, the Linux vendor firmware service is pretty cool. I, I saw this um, a few times with my uh, System76 machines. System76 actually would release firmware updates, so I didn't have to, you know, install Windows or, you know, have a bootable uh, ISO image or any kind of trickery to update the BIOS. And now the Linux vendor firmware service, which the experience has been great for me every time I've run into a firmware update, has served up more than 5 million files for firmware updates. That's mm. massive. And this is since uh, June of 2015. So it's not that old. Right. And that's cool. Yeah. And related to that, we I saw an article where System76 has an article on how they use blockchain to deliver firmware updates. So now we're getting into... <clears throat> Some programmatic things again here, uh, not not to go down any um, rabbit holes with um, automation or anything here, but the article is great because it's talking about the way that they use blockchain to um, produce these updates. They even talk about how they have two servers with a serial connection uh, because, you know, they obviously don't want um, certain servers to be publicly available to the Internet. And they just have this article that details how they go ahead and do this. So if you're curious how that works and how System76 is utilizing that, there will be a link in the show notes you can read for more information. And another thing, and I, <clears throat> excuse me, I didn't really realize that three articles in a row, or, or at least two in a row, have something to do with machine learning, especially ahead of uh, what we were already talking about. But this one is actually from Mozilla, or actually it's from Ars Technica, in regards to Mozilla... Um, planning to use machine learning to find code bugs before they ship. So what it's basically mm. saying is that there's this service that was developed by Ubisoft, which is a video game development company, where it's actually a service called Clever Commit, which is a machine learning-driven coding assistant developed in conjunction with game developer. That's basically I'm reading from the article. Developed, developed from game developer Ubisoft. And basically what it does is it analyzes code changes as developers commit them to the Firefox code base. It compares them to code that it's seen before that has had some sort of a problem or is known to be buggy. And if this assistant thinks that the commit looks suspicious, it basically warns the developer. So it's basically trying to leverage machine learning in the development process to try to prevent bugs before they actually happen. Well, there's a better use than producing <clears throat> fake articles. Yeah, I, I agree. Great better code. Um, mm. And, it, yeah, it keeps the, the developers on their toes. They find something that's you know not quite right. Maybe they need to look into it. Maybe there's a 
null pointer exception or some kind of memory leak, leak or something like that that can be caught. So, On the flip side here, we could use this to produce better code to produce fake articles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think it's actually More interesting because yeah. there's, there's been a lot of research into trying to see if there's a way to mathematically figure out you know, whether code is secure or not. Yeah. And uh, so this is like continuation on that. So getting off of the blockchain and uh, machine learning train here, um, I want to talk about KDE for a minute. I, I used KDE for quite a while early in my career, actually 10 or 11 years straight, it was my main desktop. And KDE 4 kind of burned me out. There's a lot of bugs uh, at that time. I don't think that's the case now. I think uh, every time I've used KDE, I say KDE because I'm old school, but I'm supposed to say Plasma, um, the Plasma desktop. But I've been, but uh, as of five, I think that they've gotten a lot of that worked out. And, uh, you know, every time I do use it, I'm quite impressed. 5.15 of the Plasma desktop was released on the 12th, actually. So, um, yet another version of Plasma is out, but what's interesting is that this is the 15th release of Plasma 5, and it's not like, well, here's a couple of things we fixed, and here's a few new features. I mean, if you look at the change notes, I mean, there's a lot of work going into KDE, and I, I, even though I don't use it as my default desktop anymore, I kind of feel like it doesn't get enough spotlight. Like, the work they're doing is massive. If you look at a GNOME release, the release notes are usually kind of small. I mean, yeah, they're getting a new theme, and they have this, and they have that, a few new features here and there. GNOME had a lot more new features when GNOME 3 was kind of new. Now GNOME is kind of, like, stabilized. It's just kind of status quo. But KDE does not look like they're slowing down at all. Like, there's so many highlights here that I can't even get into everything. One of them is that they're trying to have better integration with GTK apps to try to make them look more friendly because that's an issue. KDE users know this. If you run a GTK app, it stands out like a sore thumb. And um, KDE is trying to fix that. So for example, they're trying to uh, make it so that if you run Firefox, the save dialogues will actually be matching the KDE save dialogues. And GTK apps, like the theming, they're doing something there. Um, they've all, they have always been doing this, but I think even now it's better where they have something in place to try to um, apply the KDE theme to GTK apps so that they actually look like they're uniform. And they also have fixes for, quote, annoying bugs. This is from the release notes. What they're referring to is paper cuts or bugs that are not big bugs. You know, they don't crash your system or anything like that. A paper cut is something that annoys you, but you can kind of live or work around it, but you still kind of stands out. They have, they're, they're, there's a lot of bug fixes here. And... This article, just kind of skimming through the release notes for 5.15, has actually inspired me to probably review KDE. I haven't done that in a long time, so maybe I will on my channel review it. But um, I just want to give props to the KDE developers. They're working so hard. And, um, you know, with GNOME being the default on most, I, I think KDE needs some attention, It's they're, especially for the work they're doing. I think this is great. And I had the KDE article twice. All right. So I already spoke about the Ubuntu 16.04.6 LTS. That was not expected. So I won't revisit that. That was actually going to be part of the news. But better fit with distributions. And another one that I pulled up was, again, from Pharonix. Um, they're talking about some of the CPU optimization that Gen 2 does. So uh, for those of you don't, that don't know, Gen 2 is kind of like a really advanced distribution. It's not like for a beginner. It compiles everything for your hardware, and if you install it, from what I understand, and I'm not a Gen 2 user, but my understanding is you'll get a kernel tuned for the hardware you're running it on. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. And that was kind of their claim to fame was being yeah. able to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's the whole idea of running Gen 2 because you compile every single program that's running on there so that you get the optimization for your CPU. Is also why I don't run Gen 2. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I have used Gen 2 once, and it was a, it was, I actually enjoyed the experience uh, for the short time I was running it. But this article in particular is referring to, I guess there's been this long-going um, mission process, project, or whatever word you want to use, from Gen 2 to try to get some of their optimizations upstream in the kernel. I didn't know that they were even trying to do this. And mm-hmm. according to this article, they these uh, changes that Gen 2 wanted to upstream have been declined, and there's been past objections as well. And basically they believe that the changes would be minuscule because what effectively Gen 2 wants to do, if I'm understanding the article properly, is um, implement some kind of modules to... Basically, depending on what you know, CPU you're running, you'll have different um, optimizations to uh, give you a little boost in performance. But apparently, it's not considered to be a big enough in, uh, improvement to actually be approved upstream. So yeah, I'm sure all the the logic around those modules to find out your hardware and then tweak the the kernel for that. It's probably uh, it, you know it's probably more overhead than or it doesn't, you know, yeah, it I would doesn't agree. justify the upgrade. It's a maintenance burden. Yeah. It is. Yes, it is. And, and also, I would argue, just an opinion, that maybe something like that is better handled by the distribution. So say, for example, Ubuntu wants to implement this. It doesn't need to be upstream in the kernel for a distribution to say, hey, I want that feature. If they want to build in some logic to say, hey, you have a Canon Lake CPU so I'm going to import this module into the running kernel that's going to boost improvement or performance. Yeah. So maybe it could be argued that that's better handled by the distribution to make that decision whether or not they want that to be uh, a part of it. But I agree, and they're already doing that with lots of other things, other hardware-related stuff. You know, just drivers in general is basically a module thrown into the kernel, and so why not have that with other kind of op- optimizations? Yeah, I agree. I think it's cool that Gen 2 is you know, at least trying to upstream some of their... Uh, you know, methodology. So um, mm-hmm. there is that. And then moving on from there, I found a site which will be in the uh, show notes, but it's actually CR Excavator, but it's excavators misspelled, but it's basically CRXCAVATOR.io. But what this website is supposed to let you do, and I'm not a Chrome user myself, so I'm kind of paraphrasing here. I thought it might be useful, is it allows you to submit a Chrome extension ID to the site. And what it will do is analyze the Chrome extension, or actually Duo Labs is analyzing Chrome extensions, and it's supposed to give you a security uh, report based on the findings of their ongoing review of the Chrome Web Store. And I feel like a lot of people out there will just blindly say, yes, I want that extension. Yes, I want that extension. And then they don't really know what is the extension doing? Is it secure? How does it impact me? How does it impact performance? How does it impact um, battery um, optimizations? Obviously, this is not intended for performance or battery, but it's just the fact that extensions in your browser, they have an effect on your system. And security is the most important thing, so it might be something to check out and put your extensions in there, see what you're running, see how secure they are, and you might get some information. And that's uh, that piece of software is from Duo Labs, who's yep. out of Ann Arbor. Oh, I never well, knew they were local. Yeah. Well, oh. they're not anymore. Cisco uh, yeah. oh. Okay, now they're out of California. Mm. Now they're out of California. Darn it. Um, 
And one of the things that's kind of annoying, and I don't, I hope Google addresses this at some point, but there's a tool that we run into a lot called My Inbox Helper that the tool goes and logs into your Office 365 inbox and is helpful uh, in sending spam to other people and all <laughs> kinds of things. But it's it's a Chrome extension. Mm. So where does it land? It tells you what it does, but people are, well, um, bad at understanding what it does. And maybe uh, I'm not completely can't talk about everything, but maybe there was a security breach for the company about this. So, yeah. <laughs> boy. Because now you have a third party that had access to PIA that was in emails because they gave their password and two-factor to the inbox helper to help them with their inbox. Yeah. So I think with extensions, is, less is more. Use yeah. the ones you have to um, for your use case. But. It, it is it is kind of a mess. I hope they just start ripping more stuff out of there. There's very few extensions I run myself uh, because of this. I just yeah. don't trust a lot of them. Um, I do use Chrome because it works well for things. I use Firefox as well. So business stuff, I use Chrome. Personal stuff, I use Firefox. For me, it's HTTPS everywhere, uBlock yep. Origin, yep. and Decentralize. I have the first two. Yeah, Decentralize is really nice. It it's a local CDN for a bunch of different JavaScript and CSS. Oh, so cool. you don't have to reach out to the internet to get it. I, I nice. would have to check that out. That's yeah. I never heard of that. That's you really clever. Put that in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. I also wanted to mention, uh, we've already mentioned this, but there's something specific. Um, there's an article on Pharonics talking about the most interesting highlights to the Linux 5.0 kernel, which is actually due, as of the time we're recording this, out within a week or two. And um, so it's coming. And for me... There's actually some gaming performance, so I, so I do enjoy computer games. And um, one example is AMD FreeSync support. This is something that my monitor has, and Ooh. it's going to be built into the kernel. So already my ATI card works out of the box, full hardware acceleration. It's awesome. But then once uh, Ubuntu or you know whatever distribution I'm using upgrades to 5.0, then they'll have FreeSync support. And then there's going to be some... Support for some, you know, the GeForce cards, the RTX 2000 uh, graphics cards are going to be supported and so on. So I'm really excited about uh, Kernel 5.0. I'm hoping, I, I wish Debian would move to that for Debian Stable, but I think it's too late at this point, if I'm not mistaken, for them to make that big of a change. But 5.0 looks like um, it's actually a higher version kernel that I think uh, really rep rep represents a good reason to move to a .0, even though Linus basically said, uh, insert your own reason for why this is a 5.0 mm -hmm. and what's important to you. So what's important to me, other than getting work done, is also games. So that's there. And I also saw an article for Fedora 30, which is working on the slick boot process. And basically that's to be Flickr-free and have a more professional-looking boot experience because sometimes it could be off-putting to a new user to see... You know, maybe a boot logo shows up for a second, it goes away, and then it comes back, it goes away. Um, it's just not consistent. So Fedora is working on that, not just for the boot process itself, but also while it's installing updates, it actually is supposed to use Plymouth for that as well. So it's supposed to be consistent regardless of whether you're booting or installing updates. Now, for me, it doesn't affect me because my methodology is or mentality is that if you do if you're doing Linux right, you shouldn't need to reboot if you're doing like kernel hot patching or anything like that hopefully you will almost never see the boot screen you just put your machine on suspend and then wake it up and and live patch everything but i understand for the new users it's it could be um off-putting uh to see a, a really weird boot process that um is either just a blank screen with nothing 
or a boots logo that comes up for two seconds followed by a black screen that stays there for a long time. It's kind of weird. I get it. Not all of us can sit behind just a terminal and that's life for us. Right. Uh, these things have uh, far-reaching impacts for Linux adoption for the rest of yeah everybody. Yeah. I think I think the initial impression is important because if someone is new to Linux, oh, I heard this Linux thing is really awesome. And then they see the, okay, wait, they can't get the boot screen right. What, what is this? And then there's like, okay, what am I running here? Is this a, a reputable operating system? That I don't know. I'm just, I'm not of that mindset, but I can make assumptions mm-hmm. as to why that would be important. But it's cool that Fedora is working on the, desktop experience makes me wonder what their uh, message will be when they're installing updates does it say uh installing updates do not unplug yes it looks <laughs> it's, it's actually kind of weird it, it the uh verbiage looks like windows yeah it's too much it literally says and i'm i'm looking at a screenshot installing updates do not turn off your computer yeah that's almost It's just missing the Windows part at the beginning. Windows is installing updates. Right. So the difference here is that the verbiage is on the top of the screen (laughs) versus on the bottom, and it's on a black background instead of blue, but it does look like Windows, actually. Does it have an option to, like, pop down what parts of the updates it's in the middle of? That's a good question. Because that would be cool. Because I've seen that in other updating options or updating programs. I know with Plymouth, you can often hit the escape key and see the boot messages if you're interested. I always set my screen to show all the boot messages. I forget the yeah. parameter you add. But so the first thing I do is I'm like, I don't want to see a splash screen. I That's want to see true. the things. But you got to be careful with that because then if you're obsessive compulsive about your computer and you see some things that are otherwise just warnings and are not actually important, you start going down this trail of Googling, what yeah. does this message mean? What does that message <laughs> mean? And spending a lot of time on things that actually don't impact you. So sometimes there could be a benefit to having that hidden. You know... Uh, the lights are flickering. Yeah. Uh-oh. But the, uh, what I usually end up with, if I'm watching the, the screen and it hangs at something, usually, uh, in my experience, is it's hanging on the next thing it's trying to do, not what it's just showed you. Right. Uh, so you're, I mean, it already successfully did what it showed you, and now it's hung on the next thing it's doing. So you'd have to know the specific like boot order, what it's trying to do to know where it's hanging. And I guess Googling it, then, you know, other people show the same thing saying, and then somebody figures out, oh no, it's, you know, stuck on trying to decrypt your hard drive. Or and you just blah, look blah, at blah. the arch wiki because generally speaking, they, they, their, their forums and their wiki, they've already run into this problem. Even if you're not running arch, chances are they probably have the fix. That's mm-hmm. what yeah. I find. That's all for me. Cool. Well, we're, we're getting close to the end. I have two things I wanted to mention just real quick, okay. and then we can be done. I know Tom has to get out of here. Yeah, so. about 15 more minutes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I have uh, two articles. One is how to make your uh, files and directories undeletable. Ooh. Uh, so I thought that was an inter- I've seen you guys interesting. Tossing that back and forth. Yeah, Techman <laughs> has the article, and and uh, I've ta- I've heard about people using Chatter, and that's the change attributes mm-hmm. uh, for the files. And I've heard of them saying, oh, make it immutable. And and I've, but I've heard it more in like when a hacker hacks in and they want to stop logging so that you can't see what they're trying to do, they'll, they'll run things like that. Uh, but I was trying to figure out, you know, what's the, is there really a good use is for this kind of thing? And the article, they suggest to uh, do it to backups so you don't accidentally delete a backup. Uh, That's a good that, point. That makes sense. 
I but, can see that. Yeah. So, but I'm, I, you know, I threw the question out to uh, you guys uh, on the email saying, you know, have you used it for other things? I have not. My uh, methodologies for backups is hot and colds. So if I were to make some awful mistake, there is a physical separation of there's a drive that is not physically plugged into anything right now that contains all of my backups that I sync it weekly. And that's a cold drive. Then, that's right? the cold drive. So <laughs> that way, if yeah. I were to do something, because I'm using sync thing to propagate backup data, uh, but then I take some of it offline. And so that's my methodology. So, yeah. In my past, I've I've worked on t- uh, I've worked in teams where you've got um, somebody who will uh, demand root access to every server, and they'll go talk to the IT director, and then because they're on they're on some sort of special project, um, they basically get carte blanche to do whatever they want on whatever server that you happen to administrate. So uh, to prevent getting paged in the middle of the night that an application was down because someone who shall rename nameless um, decided to uh, deploy a new update without going through the entire build pipeline. Mm. Um, uh, (laughs) Shattering a file or folder has prevented many headaches. Now, on the flip side to that, I've also heard of it used um, to stop Puppet or Chef from doing the things that it needs to do, which can lead to uh, all sorts of fun. Mm. Yeah, I had that same scenario happen at a previous job uh, using Chef. And the individual, who also shall remain nameless, uh, had some problems in Chef to where we were getting errors of NTP errors because the NTP config file was you know, not correct. Mm. And Chef kept spitting out this incorrect file. There was an argument back and forth, like you know, he didn't want to you know, admit there's a problem. The problem is us and not his chef. So we, sh- we chattered the NTP config file on every server that after fixing <laughs> it, that had this problem, he would get upset with us and say, you know, you shouldn't do this because now my chef air- server is airing out. We'll <laughs> fix your NTP. And then we wouldn't have had, had to do this. And this back and forth, um, Take responsibility for your code. Yeah. Right. Um, what? No. no. <laughs> Only one minute I wrote some of it. I do think... <laughs> now, I did have a a time period I could have used that where we had a um, this network, this NFS mount where it has some really important stuff on it and somebody cleared it, emptied completely out this entire thing. And nobody wants to ex- wanted to accept responsibility for this and it was a big deal because these are extremely important files that are build artifacts for the company's program. So in that case, you know, chattering the file, uh, making it immutable might help to you know, get rid of that situation. But at that time, what I actually mandated is that all NFS is read-only um, on anyone's computer. And nobody is allowed to have read-write to it. And if something needs to be, you know, changed, maybe a few approved responsible p- people can have a separate read-write mount to it that's mm. not mounted at the same place. But all the developers, I, I basically mandated, because I have the authority to do so, that all developers who build the software are only allowed to have read-only. And then I adopted the mentality, everything should be read-only by default unless there's a reason to have read-write. Um, that was how I handled that. But I think that's a much better solution than using uh, Shatter, personally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. I'm, I'm sure there's probably some useful reasons, and maybe our listeners will write in with their stories on, on or scenarios uh, where it was useful to them, uh, for sure. But... 
I have never personally seen it used for anything more than, um, you know, uh, annoying the person on your team that, um, <laughs> you know, has an invalid config. But you can always write us at show at smlr.us and let us know if you have run into a situation where create or causing a file to be immutable or, or setting it to be such would uh, benefit a particular situation you've run into. Yeah, yeah. Or if you were the situation, that someone <laughs> or you're happy you. that a system did it because you like they saved you, like you couldn't break the thing, but that you're like, you know what, that system didn't save my butt. And, brown, <laughs> and you get brownie points if it's a funny situation or prank that was pulled on you oh. or something, and that would be kind of amusing as well because I'm sure somebody <laughs> has used it for um, nefarious reasons. Yeah. All right, so the last thing I have uh, is a project that I just saw uh, come through the other day, uh, well, this morning, and uh, it's called ELSA. And so the Linux Foundation has this project called ELSA, and it is for building safety-critical systems. Ooh. Uh, and in the article, it's talking about that they're kind of building on the um, the automotive uh, Linux, what is that project called? Automotive Linux. Oh, all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so Automotive Linux is on, what, version 5 now? And so they're going to build on that, and then, but encompass other things that are like safety-related. And if you think of, like, automotive things, you're driving down the road, and it needs to be secure and safe. And, you know, if, if you're relying on this computer to drive your computer, say it's an autom- uh, automated or, um, you know, aut- autonomous vehicle, then it has to be ultra secure and ultra reliable. So, so quit hooking cell phones up to a Chrysler. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so the Linux Foundation has launched the Linux and Safety Applications, or ELSA, uh, and they describe it as the open source project uh, comprising tools intended to help companies build and certify Linux-based systems where, whose failure could result in the loss of human life. Oh, wow. So, yeah, and they, they put a few other if, things in with it. But if you want to expand on that, uh, CAN bus hacking is the mm-hmm. search term you want to use, and then you can be scared, and then you can go back to driving a Model T. <laughs> so that's, a, that's an important thing, too. And also, what about um, hospitals that run proprietary software where people's life literally depends on some machine that's hooked up to them or something like There's that. some good reading I've done on some of that. It's scary, but there's uh, the way they fail is differently. So, man, I wish I, if I can find it, I'll throw it in the show notes, no guarantees. Uh, but th- there was an in-depth article about what it's like to design medical devices because normally when a device has a problem, you want it to fail and stop. But if that machine is keeping someone's heart going, that's not the fail mode you want. No. Uh, so there was some really interesting, um, there was a deep dive someone did into what it's like being a medical device designer and what some of the challenges are um, from the doctor's perspective and from the other perspective and how it's so much different than many other industries because there's not really a stop. It's it's so mission critical. In the middle of surgery, we can't do it, but the doctors do have to have ways that they have to be understood that this if this device is a problem, how you work around those. Right. And uh, some of the medical facilities have those new microsurgery devices. And I mean, that's, you can't stop in the middle of it. <laughs> and it, the right. article says uh, for Elsa that it, it does uh, mention medical as well. Yeah. It mentions energy and. Uh, any of these are critical. Anything mm-hmm. anything like that is definitely critical. Because, you know, when it's about security, you should never let it go. Right. That's a frozen joke on Elsa if you guys didn't oh. catch it. <laughs> I like oh, it. Yeah, I'm looking at the article now that Automotive Linux, it's AL, AGL, 
automotive grade Linux. Oh, yeah. sorry, I was incorrect then. It's alright. It's alright. I'm just that it. I so I. I mean, it's basically the same thing, but yeah. the the actual project was AGL. But the it, everything runs on Linux, mm-hmm. so yes, it does. Yeah, it scares me that my car's drive by wire. It's uh, one, I have one of the one of my Toyota is one of the first few years that they started doing the full drive by wire system. So mm. can you disable that? No. Oh. There's no physical connection between the pedal and the mechanics that uh. run the engine. Um, so, and that's a lot of them are. They haven't quite, they have not approved any, to my knowledge, uh, drive-by wire braking systems. So even like the Tesla has a mechanical braking that follows up with the uh, electric braking. Mm-hmm. And that's actually how a lot of cars that are in the electric field have things like that. Um, but for all, for all of your newer cars, if you're driving anything in the last even five years, most of them are uh, drive-by wire. So there's no connection physically between the gas pedal and the engine mechanics, which can allow for runaway engines. Even when you physically move, because I've taken it apart on mine, the gear shifter, it's not really doing anything in the transmission. It's just kind of a position sensor going, yeah, you you want it in forward or back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everything else wow. is just, that's why some of them have a little twist knob. They finally got, people got used to the concept, but that they had to put it in as a concept because people didn't like it. Um, unless they had something physical to move, now they've eliminated it in some of the newest vehicles. You just turn in the knob and instead of pulling the lever that used to actually yeah. mechanically move the transmission. Yeah, my my <laughs> van is like that. It's right on the dash. It's yeah. still like a, a knob you have to pull. But if you take it apart, it's you there. can tell. Yeah, you, yeah, it doesn't connect to anything. Yeah, <laughs> just wires. <laughs> this is how the Chrysler hack happened. Yes, it is. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, that's all I have. Uh, so oh, we've cool. come to the end of the show. Uh, this has been episode 302. Unicorn Prompt. And this is Tony Bemis. Tom Lawrence. Phil Parada. Jay LaCroix. And uh, have a good week. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us or give us a call at 734-258-7009. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can... Bite my 8-bit metal ass! That's bite with a Y. <laughs>